Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Iron List. This is our list show <laughs> where we do lists. My name is William Bibiani. I am a, a critic for the rap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write for Slash Film. Uh, keep an eye out for my big Star Trek essay. Yeah. Get to do Star Trek articles from time to time. If, if you love Whitney and you love Star Trek, mm. boy, are you listening to the right podcast <laughs> network because he talks about it a lot. And also, you have like a whole series of articles over there about tracking, tracking That's right. the tracks. Uh, yeah, I got. Uh, I wrote an article about uh, Dr. Flox, who is a character from Star Trek Enterprise. Mm. So, yeah, I, I do the deep cut stuff. Yeah, you do the good stuff. Um, but anyway, that's not why we're here today. We're here to have uh, our show, The Iron List. This is a monthly program here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where over at our Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can listen to this and all our other new shows ad-free and get a whole bunch of other exclusive podcasts that are just for Patreon subscribers, including our Star Trek podcast. But uh, we have a poll every single month, uh, and our patrons get to pick which top ten list Whitney and I will do a big epic episode about the following month. Uh, and uh, this month... The winner, that's a fun one, time travel movies, of which there is no shortage. Oh, goodness no. Uh, yeah, time yeah. travel is, uh, how, 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 to, uh, how to make this Realistic? sound smart. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, it, it's one of those conceits that just sort of inflames the imagination. Yeah. It's like, what, what if you could travel in time? What would you, what would you experience yeah. in the past? Or, what or, would you experience or the future. Or the future. Yeah, what could you do? Um, uh, in, yeah. in high school, we loved to have uh, speculative conversations about yeah. causality and how we would travel through time, no, et, cetera, et cetera, Nothing turns a teenager into a quantum physicist faster than saying, hey, w if you went back in time and changed something mm. and you came back, would it, you be in the same timeline or would you have created an offshoot reality? And then all of a sudden, you're just been there all lunch, like just talking yeah, about nothing yeah. but time travel shit and all the different movies you've seen that have different rules. And, 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 and you feel really smart. Yeah. Because you figured out the causality stuff. Because you watched Back to the Future once. I was in a road trip with my dad and a friend of mine from school. It was this little thing. We we're just going up, like, you know, mm -hmm. Northern California for a day. But um, my dad was trapped in a car with, like, two junior high schoolers trying oh, to figure no. out time travel for, like, four <laughs> hours. And I, and we were having fun, but I could also, like, slowly watch the light in his eyes dim. <laughs> as he's just like, what have I done? I don't care. I'm never driving you and your friends again. But uh, anyway, well, time travel is really, really fun, and it's we, led to a whole bunch of different types of movies, from action movies, comedies, serious, uh, depressing sci-fi, speculative stories, mm. to uh, romantic comedies. There's all kinds of different ways to handle it, all different kinds of rules, and um, yeah, we're going to each pick our top ten best time travel movies in our yeah. estimation. That's right. Uh, time travel, uh, I think, is impossible. I think uh, I, it, it, at last sort of scientific study, trying to figure out how to relive events of the past, and I think that hasn't been cracked yet. I'm going to say this right now. I believe that time travel is possible, and I can prove it, because we are all traveling forward through time right now. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Everyone's, everyone's a time travel, it's traveler. It's just at the exact same rate, at a very constant rate, um, and then and then you, you, you get there. Uh, okay, Christopher Nolan. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Chris, I do not have Christopher Nolan films on my list. Nor um, I. Nor I. 
Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, time, after all, doesn't exist. This concept we came up with to mm. measure change. That's true. That's true. Time is time is a bizarre uh, construct. Mm. Time uh, time is relative. Uh, the amount of time it takes for something to to pass depends a lot upon our perception thereof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know, don't get me started on faster than light travel and shit because I don't know what the fuck any of that works. <laughs> they, some people tried to explain that to me a million times. Uh, don't you dare start. Okay, very briefly. <laughs> oh god. The faster the the faster you go, the closer uh-huh. you approach the speed of light, the slower time moves. That's all. But why? You're you're still there. Uh, because energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Uh, I'm sorry. Who proved that? <laughs> uh, haven't you seen Event Horizon? I have seen Event they, Horizon. It's not very good. They talk about the law of relativity. I like that in they yeah. say this, the law of relativity says you can't travel faster than light. Yeah, not the theory they don't say anymore. The theory. It's, they yeah. just say it's the law in that yeah, movie. Yeah, very, very rigid enforcement. Um, so anyway, so here's how this show works if you're new. Uh, we each pick a top ten list. We don't talk about our top ten lists ahead of time. I have no idea what Whitney put on his list. He has no idea what I put on mine, although we know each other pretty well. We might be able to make some predictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the criteria, entirely ours to pick. What qualifies as a time travel story? What qualifies as not a time travel story? There's a few movies out there where one could make an argument either way. We get to make those decisions and we don't get to fight them. Mm. Uh, the other big thing when we do top ten lists is we don't rank them the way other people do. Our number ten recommendation is not less recommended than our number five. That We find that irrelevant. If a movie yeah. has made this list, we are recommending it to you very highly and we want you to, if, if you're interested, we want you to see it. Mm. We're, we recommend you see these films. The only exception is that our number one pick is the film that if it, the chips were down and someone said, hey, what's the best time travel movie ever? This would be our pick. Yeah. But two through ten, uh, it's a it's a nine-way tie. Maybe even yeah. more, because sometimes we do ties. Uh, and there are many different uh, time travel conceits in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, different rules. One of, one of my rules was... Uh, although it is technically a time travel conceit, I didn't want to do time loop movies. Oh. I feel like that's sort of a subgenre into itself mm. uh, that has really exploded in recent years. Yeah, um, but- uh, Groundhog Day was the film that basically codified that. Yeah, Everyone well, there, after there seeing like, Groundhog Day, there were people like Twilight Zone episodes that yeah. did the same thing. But, but I uh, think after watching Groundhog Day and Groundhog Day was a hugely popular film. Mm. Uh, I think everyone just sort of understood the premise very cleanly yeah. because that movie they, made it very very clear. At, and at after that, day, anyone can. Up, yeah. so, and then after that, any movie could just do Groundhog Day, and everyone be like, I get it. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like Night of the Living Dead, where it's like we're gonna all of a sudden all the dead come back to life and start eating human flesh. That was not a thing before Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead just kind of made that one up. It was inspired by other things, but that specific idea of the zombie apocalypse, Night of the Living Dead. But after Night of the Living Dead did it, everyone's like, well, yeah, I mean, that would happen. <laughs> I can wrap my head around that, so I don't need any more explanation than that. And they uh, they didn't use the word zombie in that movie. No, they, they didn't. Said, they said ghouls. In fact, I don't think they used the word zombie in a Romero movie until Diary of the Dead. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. No, no, in uh, Land of the Dead. Do they use zombie in Land yeah. of the Dead? I don't um, remember. 
because uh, Dennis Hopper is looking out. It's like zombies, man. I hate. Them. Oh, that's right. You're right. But yeah. it was decades. It was mm. decades before Romero would accept the use of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. T- so time loop movie. So Groundhog Day is out as okay. is Happy Death Day, which they name check Groundhog Day in that movie. Uh-huh. Uh, Palm Springs, Map of Tiny Perfect Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, lot, would, a lot of time loop films came out in the last couple of years. It, it's tricky though because actually a lot of time travel movies, because of how they might handle causality. Mm-hmm are time loops that just don't follow the Groundhog Day structure. Right. So one could make an argument, perhaps, that, I don't know what films are on your list, but it's possible some of the films on your list feature a time loop. Yeah. yeah. Even though they're not time loop movies. I did not have that rule, although my one rule was I wouldn't allow myself more than, like, one or two. Like, it's definitely not... When we think of time travel, that's generally not the vibe we're going for, but I do think it's fair game. So you might see one or two of those on my list. I didn't rule it out. Yeah, Uh, and... Aside from that, technological, magical doesn't matter. Time travel. Mm. If there's a lot, if there's a little, time travel is an element. That was that was my only rule. I didn't want to do the loop thing. Uh, the other uh, rule I had was uh, no cryogenic freezing. Oh, and waking up in the future. Yeah, technically yeah. that's time travel. If you want to get technical, Austin Powers is time travel. Uh, no, Austin but, Powers uh, two, they actually have a time machine. Austin Powers two is officially time travel, but even Austin Powers one, because mm. they use cryogenic freezing to travel into the future. That's technically time travel. We don't yeah. always think of it that way. Uh, but um, I was like, nah, it's not really the fun of it, so I decided to leave that one out. Okay. But honestly, there weren't a lot of films that I even would have seriously considered with that conceit anyway. Okay. Um, on that note, is there anything else you want to talk about before we jump in? No, I, I think uh, I think we're good. Awesome. All right. Well, let these these podcasts tend to be a, a bit of a marathon. Uh, so let's let's start our journey. Let's let's fire that firecracker. All right. I'm going to start with uh, just a, a favorite of mine. We've done a commentary track for this movie. Okay. And it's Army of Darkness, uh, okay. the Sam Raimi film. All right. Uh, it repurposes the end of the previous movie in the series, which was Evil Dead Two. Uh, yes. Sam Raimi wanted to call it Medieval Dead, but Universal wanted to sell it as sort of like its own entity. So Universal it it, Army of Darkness. It's weird because they signed up to make the third Evil Dead film, so they mm. clearly thought the franchise had value. But they also wanted to trick people into who had never seen an Evil Dead movie into mm. thinking it was something brand new. Yeah, and that betrays a lack of confidence that unfortunately <laughs> would well, yield a lot of the issues that had that that film dealt with, including. A poster that had very little to do with the movie's tone, mm. and uh, and a studio mandated ending that was a little bit unraimi esque in some regards. Uh, I mean, it's it's so crazy and abrupt. That no, I, Raimi I makes it, it kinda, work. Kinda it, fun. Of, of all it's like the studio right mandated endings out there, like Raimi like made it Raimi. He yeah. didn't just tack it on. It wasn't like some other director came in and just shoved on a final scene. Mm. He's like, okay, but I'm gonna make this like the Sam Raimi mega happy ending. Yeah, yeah. and it's gonna be very, very me. So I prefer so the, the uh, I prefer the original ending of Army of Darkness, but uh, both the, uh, versions are very good. The uh, the original ending of Evil Dead Two was yeah. uh, premise of that movie is college student uh, played by Bruce Campbell. Mm. His buddies go out to a cabin in the woods. Uh, tape recorder plays passages from an old book that's bound in flesh and written in blood and wouldn't you know it it resurrects the dead and summons ghouls uh, by the end of the movie they do battle with monsters uh, they banish the evil by sending it through a portal which as it turns out sends it back in time yeah and unfortunately takes our hero mm-hmm. ash played by bruce campbell and, along with it and uh, sam raimi's oldsmobile and sam uh, raimi's and oldsmobile yes. th- those, those things are traveled and it, at the end of evil dead 2 he uh 
stands up in medieval times. There's a monster there. He shoots it, and all the knights around him says, "Oh, he's he's our savior here to save us from all these monsters." He's our chosen hail, one. Hail, hail! And they all praise him. And and yeah. Ash, who's kind of a selfish jerk, just says, "No, no." Well, I, I don't and it's know kind of a, an unhappy ending. I, I don't know if it's because he's a selfish jerk. Yeah. I think uh, it's because he's had a very long night, and now he's traveled back in time and has no idea how he's going to get out of here. Um, but either way, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a heroic ending because here he is, he's like our chosen one now, but it's also, damn guy can't catch a break. <laughs> so the, so the, I, I do love that yeah. the arc of that character is he gets like dumber and meaner as the movies go on. He just becomes more and more of a jerk. Yeah, if you look at the original uh, Evil Dead, he's actually very quiet and sensitive mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and articulate and knows Latin and then he just gets more of it, more of a, more of a dork. Um, but yeah, Army oh, yeah. of Darkness, Army of Darkness is... uh, rewrites that ending. Yeah, it, a open, bit. it opens with that sequence, and he falls. They, there's even footage from Evil Dead too. He falls into yeah. into the past. Uh, only in this one, he's uh, arrested for like magic for witchcraft. Yeah, he doesn't become a chosen one for a few scenes. They, yeah. they, it's sort of like um, so they, uh, we we probably rush that as smid. We're yeah, gonna they, they, rewrite so, that. Later. And the, of course, it's it's a slapstick. It's yeah. hardly even. It's a, a Connecticut Yankee anymore. in King Arthur's court. If the Connecticut Yankee had a chainsaw hand, and and, and was a big old jerk, and face. was a big old jerk, and also there were zombies <laughs> and demons. Admittedly, that's a great pitch, but uh, it's we can only take that so seriously, and the movie does too. It's not until he like climbs out of the demon pit that uh, Arthur and his men have. Yeah, and there's a, a geyser of human blood, which is probably what get, got at the R rating. Uh, but yeah, the, the central gag is that Ash is this insensitive lout. He speaks in modern terms. He he seems a little bit unaware of how to communicate with these people, so he just uses yeah. modern slang and cusses at them. He has no concern whatsoever about changing the timeline. No, no, no. It's not, it's not part of... He, it, just, he does not care. He just needs to get home, and the plot of the movie is he uh, has to get the same book from Evil Dead 2, yeah. which has a magic spell that can send him back. Uh, but in so doing... Uh, not only creates an evil duplicate of himself, but uh, raises, raises, an, army raises an army of the dead by accident. And then yeah. the, the climax of the film is he, has, he and the castle have to fight yeah. off this army of the so, dead. So Ash is the hero and the villain of the piece, at least his incompetence is. Uh, well, and that Bruce Campbell plays both parts, so I think yeah. that's very fitting. Yeah, it's uh, it's a hoot, this film. It's, it's so much fun. Uh, it's something that... Like every fifteen-year-old yeah. has glommed onto at some point, it just has such an irreverent uh, attitude, just such a high energy level, such it's, great slapstick fun. It's full of memorable one-liners. There's a lot of great set pieces to it. The bit where um, Ash is like, there's a whole gag recurring throughout the Evil Dead movies where Ash is looking into a mirror, and the version of himself in the mirror is haunted in some way. And in this one, like the mirror shatters, and they're like little tiny ashes mm. that like get up like little Lilliputians and try to kill him. And that whole sequence mm. is just a, an unbelievable delight. Just absolutely <laughs> the, imaginative the and weird. Special effects are great, but no, yeah. but they're but they're they're, they're inventive uh-huh. and they're portrayed with panache. So even though the visual effects are, you know, ten years later, those would be considered okay for TV. Yeah, but for even for movies at the time, it was it was a little low fi But it's presented with a lot of personality and a lot of humor, and as a result, you can just totally lose yourself in it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a cad. He's uh, he's kind of an antihero just because he's just become just a total piece of shit some, yeah. at some point between the movies. Uh, I made this for the good. I could use a horse blanket. Yeah, it's just <laughs> just a dick. Um, but he's so atypical. He's so unusual 
for this kind of a movie. Uh, that it really, really works. It's Bruce Campbell's movie, really. I mean, mm. Sam Raimi's directing the hell out of it, but if Bruce Campbell didn't show a side of himself that he'd never really had a chance to show before, this kind of, like, weird anti Cary Grant vibe that he's got. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah, I, I don't think it would have worked. I can't imagine, like, almost any other actor working. Like, maybe Kurt Russell could have pulled that off there are mm. very few actors who have that exact it's it's difficult to picture somebody I'm, else playing that role. i'm gonna be intensely unlikable in the most likable possible way and i'm mm. thinking of someone like jack burton the big from little china, china yeah. uh, robert downey jr jr in the iron man movies like it's very very difficult to pull off most people don't have that knack bruce campbell nailed it um I, I like this movie a lot. It didn't make my top ten uh, just because I don't think it's much of a time travel movie. Really, it's basically just he just throws. Well, the, it's it's the central conceit. Uh, obviously, I'll, I just it's not really about time travel to me. It's about well, it is about him trying to find the means to travel through time. I guess which he does, just, and, and there are two endings. Uh, if, yeah. if you. Uh, if you have one of the 400 home video editions that yeah. they've put out of Army of Darkness, you can probably see both editions. But in the ending that they did not use. Mm. Uh, uh, Ash was uh, meant to take a potion. Yeah. Accidentally drank too much. Yeah. And went uh, ahead in time, uh, I, th I think a century too far. One extra century, yeah. yeah. Century too far. And so, the world had ended. Yeah, he, and he woke, <laughs> wakes up in this like post-apocalyptic hellscape. It was yeah. like, uh, and his last line of dialogue is, I slept too long, so still can't catch a break. Yeah, awesome. Uh, good, good gag. The studio-mandated ending is he... He does make it back to the present, but in a crazy kind of a way. In a way that brought zombies back with him, yeah. and that was led to the show. And it's all really, really wonderful. Like even the the studio version of that movie is still very, very good. Mm. No, the reason why I just I didn't include it, it made my runners up. But like, um, the, the majority, I'd say nine out of the ten movies I picked on my list are not just you know about time travel. They're about time travel. They're okay. about the concept of time travel and what it would mean and what it would do and how we think about time and what it what it's, what time travel is an allegory for. It has something on its mind, and I don't think Army of Darkness does really, and that's not a problem. And I'm going <laughs> to tell Army you, Army of Darkness doesn't have a thought in its head. No, it's, not really. It's not about much of anything. And I'm not complaining about that because my number ten also doesn't have a thought in its head. It's my <laughs> Army of Darkness pick. It's my okay. super weird, ridiculous, what, what the hell is this movie? But I love it so much. Uh, that is the 1986 sci-fi adventure Eliminators. <laughs> oh, bless you, sir. Eliminators is a blast. Eliminators is awesome. Okay, so Eliminators... Uh, is imagine it's not like a, it's not a canon film. It is might it? be canon actually. Yeah. Hold on, let me look it up. Hang on, uh, Eliminators. Uh, there's apparently a 2016 film that has nothing to do with it. Um, uh, <laughs> well, tell, tell tell us about okay. the 1986 version. Uh, of Imagine imagine if RoboCop, a ninja, Indiana Jones, R2D2, and Denise Crosby teamed up to fight a mad scientist with a time machine. Yeah, that done so, right. The, the and the movie you picture it, it was Embassy Pictures. It's not a okay. not a not a canon yeah, film. Pretty close. Or, excuse me, em, not Embassy Empire. Empire. Um, I guess pretty close. Pretty close. So, similar similar <laughs> they, ambitions. They ran in the same uh, same yeah. group. Um, yeah, the 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 movie you just pictured in your head yeah. kind of is what Eliminators turned out. It's like it's way better than it should be, mm. given the budget, given the the type of absolutely just bizarre. Uh, uh, concept. It's a very comic booky film at a time when there weren't very good comic booky films. 
if we're being perfectly frank. It was written by Paul uh, DeMeo and Danny Bilson, who would go on to work on the uh, live-action The Flash series in the 1990s, mm. and which shows you that they really understand tone really well. They understand that you can have something really absurd, provided that you strike the right tone. Mm. That you create a universe in which it makes sense that that absurd thing exists, that you take it just seriously enough that you care about it, but not so seriously that you're asking the audience to, like unload our soul mm. <laughs> this is just really righteous wonderful effective pulp the visual effects are pretty good for low budget like they look pretty cool actually the mandroid looks kind of neat like i i like the mandroid it looks yeah, very the, uh... it, it looks very homemade but in a way that like actually someone like a mad scientist would make it homemade you know like the good homemade yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, the idea is um the the mandroid was constructed from like a, a salvaged dead pilot's body, so there's this uh, um, yeah. Frankenstein element to it. Yeah, but he's attached to tank treads. Yeah, and it, the top half of his body is still intact, but the bottom half can be sort of replaced with uh, tank treads or legs if he wants yeah. them. Johnny Long Torso, the man who comes in pieces. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and this mad scientist has been using this mandroid to go back in time and collect bits. Mm. Like I want to, I want an actual Centurion shield. From the ancient Roman Empire, but a fresh one. <laughs> so go ahead and get it, and then it ends up. <laughs> what a fresh one! This one's not fresh enough. It doesn't yeah. taste good. And then it just somehow like he ends up getting like uh, uh, pulled away from the mad scientist, mm. and ends up teaming up with Indiana Jones knockoff Denise Crosby from right around the time she uh, started appearing in Star Trek. Uh, and there's a flying robot, and there's a ninja, and they're gonna the, the travel. Ninja's, the ninja's almost an afterthought. Like, yeah, he shows up late in the movie. It's like, well, oh wait, what have we forgot? Ninjas. We need a ninja yeah. in this thing. It's so Conan Lee on. too. Is actually a pretty good actor. Um, and uh, yeah, it's basically, and we're just gonna travel up the Amazon, fighting stuff, mm. and then get into a giant time travel battle in a big fancy castle filled with and, gadgets yeah. and, and he, ancient historical weapons. The uh, the Indiana Jones character is named Harry Fontana, so they're they're just like shamelessly knocking stuff mm-hmm. off. But it it has even more so than something like Army of Darkness. Eliminators has that uh, like some eight year old kid had like way too many jelly beans and. Yeah just wrote down all of their most exciting ideas. It's got what, an axe cop see. vibe. Yeah, like, yeah, a kid make... came up with it and adults decided to make it as good as they could. Mm. Um, and it's a hoot. It's so much fun. And I people do not talk about it enough. Uh, and I'm a really big giant fan. There is not much to it, really. I'm not going <laughs> to pretend otherwise. But I'm a huge fan. And I think uh, if, you, if you want something, just a really stupid time travel movie... That is a blast to watch. You can't do much better. Although Army of Darkness is definitely on par. <laughs> they're they're both fun. They're both and fun. They're both uh, yeah. All right, what's your next one? Army of Darkness is more of a spoof. Yeah. Uh, Eliminators is like straight up, straight up the middle. Like it's they the thought thing, they could make yeah. a franchise or something. Like they were really trying here. Army of Darkness is, is a broad comedy compared yeah. to Eliminators. Yeah. All right, what you got? Uh, th- this one was a, a cult film for a, a little bit, little while, and I think it's sort of fallen out of favor in recent mm. years. Uh, but it's Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko. Oh, okay. Um, I've never been the hugest fan, although I do appreciate it. Uh, well, and that, that's what I wanted to say. I, I like Donnie Darko a lot, but yeah. I, I don't quite understand the passionate cult that sort of grew up around it. Yeah. I think it's an interesting film. I, yeah. I think there's fun stuff in it worth discussing. Uh, I think it's got I, this very uh, adolescent 
concept of maturity and darkness. It's yeah, a very, yeah, it's a well, very I, grim sort of coming of age tale that happens to have time travel in it, and I, also a, a magical, evil-looking bunny that only our hero can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which ties into the time travel thing. Yeah, tell me about the plot because uh, it's a little weird. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, Donnie Darko is this character played by uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, and he he's. Uh, seeing therapist and dealing with a lot of mental health issues that uh, I don't think they really define them very well, but he mm. clearly has uh, socializing issues and he hallucinates and he's you know been taking some medication. And uh, one evening he, I think he sleepwalks out of his house. Mm. And uh, when he's out, a plane engine lands on his house. Yeah. Fortunately he was sleepwalking. Otherwise he would have been yeah, killed. He, and it you know, yeah. lands in his bedroom and it would have killed him if he weren't sleepwalking. And this, uh, kind of throws his life into stark relief, gives him a bit of an existential crisis. Uh, and he has to sort of live through this. And uh, while he's also dealing with kind of how horrible his high school is, it takes place in the 1980s. Uh, and the school has hired this sort of like self-help guru mm. to help the kids deal with like their pain in this very superficial kind of a way. Is it the sparkle or, motion guy? No, that's uh, it's Patrick, Patrick Swayze guy. Yeah. Sparkle Motion was... Separate thing. Separate thing. Separate thing. I remember a little That was the talent show. I thought thought he was part of the Sparkle Motion thing. I think I'm remembering a little bit wrong. Yeah, no, uh, his little sister has, like, this uh, dance troupe that she belongs to. That's right. That's entering talent contests. That's right. And that's called Sparkle Motion. Okay, thank you. I knew it was was off. This came out in 2001, uh, and it's very much a critique of a lot of culture of the 1980s, Mm. where it's looking at a lot of the the superficiality of the 1980s and the the whole deal with sparkle motion it's it's just a dance troupe for kids yeah. at high, at a school you know they're not do they're, you know they're not uh, reinventing the wheel and and yet there's this the cult like fervor yeah, over like, within like the, the community but the yeah. characters the adult characters are taking something like sparkle motion incredibly seriously same with uh, uh, the Patrick Swayze character and i feel yeah. like you call it very adolescent, and I agree with that, and I think that's by design. I, think I agree. Richard, I think Richard I Kelly was trying to capture a certain kind of adolescent disgust with the world uh, by placing Donnie Darko, the main character, Jake Gyllenhaal, on sort of on the outside, looking at everything and just completely grossed out by all of it. Like, he, he has this unique perspective, and as it turns out, in this very adolescent fashion, in this wish-fulfillment fashion, he actually is anyway. privy to secret information. Yeah. So it, he it might have kind some of a, kind of secrets of the universe unlocked yeah, and in his so, brain. Yeah. So he begins studying time travel and a lot of these iconography and all these weird uh, mystical things that are tied in with time travel and grilling teachers about what it works and sort of the theology of it. There's a, a really great scene where he's talking to one of his teachers and says, well, if we're talking about time travel, we're talking about fate. Like we all have paths we're definitely going to travel. Yeah. And they're all sort of tied in with this unifying force. I mean, God is the is kind of a unifying force, right? And the teacher says... I have to stop talking now. I can't discuss this yeah. with you. Like we can't have a, a we can't a, have a theology conversation. Yeah, we can't talk school, about theology yeah. at at a public school. Um, it, it's a lot of disparate elements. I think it sprawls a little bit too much. It's yeah. not not as tight a film as it could have been. No, I agree with you there. But, uh, but I think I think everything it has on its mind, mm. even though it's sprawling, is very focused on this teen existential crisis um, mindset. 
yeah. that are that the Jake Gyllenhaal character and other characters around him have uh, this feeling of isolation, of loneliness, of feeling uh, lost, not just in your school or in your family, mm. but in time. Mm. You know, I, am I in a state of becoming? Is this all life is? Is this the end? Uh, and I think the time travel elements of it are kind of a literalization mm. of a lot of the sort of teen uh, malaise. Yeah, and I think it's one of the reasons people really respond to it. I don't think that the intellectual concepts that it throws out there so confidently really all work. I think I I I think think I think it's maybe more from the gut than it is from the uh, head, which is I think maybe the screenplay doesn't really admit that. I I think it works for Donnie, and that's what that's what matters. It sounds important to the character, and it works for the character. So I I can forgive some of the the pseudo intellectual concepts it's throwing out there. It feels very MTV, even though it came out in two thousand one. Yeah. Well, that, that, was still, that was still the influence of the time. Yeah. We hadn't passed that yet. It I was guess still, not. Yeah. Uh, it would make a good double feature with a, a, a film I very much love called Ghost World. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Terry Zwigoff made another movie about teen alienation. That, there's no supernatural element to that one. But, or uh, is there? No, there's not. Oh, okay. It's, it's very, very specifically down to earth. <laughs> the whole world of ghosts. It's about, it's about gra- <laughs> graduating high school and the, the world is just sort of this alien uh, right, ethereal presence to you. Yeah. So I I do like Donnie Darko, and I want to recommend Donnie Darko uh, outside of its cult. Yeah. Don't don't, I, don't worry about it as a cult yeah. thing. Look at it as here's what I'm going to say about Donnie Darko. If even if you're not, if, even if you're like me and you kind of like admire it more than you like it, um, it's one hell of a debut. Yeah. I, as a directorial think, debut, uh, that is a very confident and very imaginative piece of work. I think Richard Kelly, though, like that film became, it started, it opened small, but it became sort of this cult sensation. A lot Pretty of people quick. watched it. It, it, it made its way into the midnight circuit. And uh, I think Richard Kelly started to drink, uh, you know, believe his own story after a while. Yeah. To drink his own Kool Aid. And uh, so he started making films like Southland Tales. Yeah. Which came out in two thousand eight. I and mean, look, that, that movie is insanity. I mean, look, that's a big swing. <laughs> it's no one it's, can no one can pretend you, you held back. He, it's not a big swing. It's him picking up like fistfuls of baseball bats and just throwing them all. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't like Southland Tales. I, I, Any version of it, I don't like it. I, I I get it. I get why people like it. I find it just a big old pile of stuff. <laughs> Not even I, a good pile. I like it just for a, kind of how ambitiously misguided it is. Yeah, that's like a good way to put it. Was it was this huge... Ambitiously uh, misguided. Yeah, like it's this, it. this enormous project. And it, it also had a time travel element because there's two Sean William Scotts oh, in that yeah, movie. I forgot about that. Yeah, there's yeah. like a, a corpse that had died in a previous there's like, timeline. There's like and, 80 different subplots in that movie. I think half of them are from like genres yeah. that haven't been invented yet. And, and you know, like there's this big... supposed to be this big critique of the George W. Bush administration. It's a very odd film. And none of it works like no, it's no, all no, no. it's all bad decisions but it's fascinating and i watched it multiple times like yeah. this is terrible in a way that i can't look away it has like a train wreck quality. it's an interesting kind of terrible mm. which is maybe the best kind of terrible mm. but uh it's i still think it's pretty terrible but donnie Darko's <laughs> fun and I, I didn't make my list on my runners up but i i, I like it okay. um i don't think it may run us up i'll check my list anyway uh but my next uh, you know what uh perfectly good segue my next pick also has jake gyllenhaal in it oh, so okay. fuck it let's talk about duncan jones's source code uh, which isn't a time travel movie yes, until it is. the end. Yes, well, then it is a time travel movie, <laughs> isn't it? It is a time travel movie of a sort. 
Uh, Source code. In fact, when it when it became a time travel movie, it lost me. Shut up. Just let me let me let me give me a moment to sell it before you tear it down. All right. Fine. Okay. Um, anyway, Source Code uh, uh, finds uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. He's a test pilot, and uh, he wakes up in the body of someone else. He doesn't know this person. He doesn't know where he is, and he is on uh, a passenger train uh, in the in a nondescript afternoon. Uh, and within a few minutes, the passenger train explodes, and everyone on it dies, including him. And then he wakes up in a test module where he receives a radio communique from his handler played by Vera Farmiga. And Vera Farmiga says, hey, how'd it go? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's all messed up from the procedure. And she says, okay, well, here's what's going on. There was a terrorist attack on a train. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a, a form of time travel technology that allows us to basically shunt your consciousness into one person on that train, but only with a couple of minutes to go before the train explodes. And we, well, the, you, ca- you cannot stop it, you cannot change time, but you do have those couple of minutes to search around, interact, and try to find as much information as you can so that we can catch the culprit and prevent them from doing this again. So he has to relive the last few minutes of everyone on this train's life and accept... What the scientist is telling them that they're not real, they're mm-hmm. not human. This is basically like a replayed old recording of time that yeah, the- you cannot change anything. These are just abstract figures, and we're just doing research. But to him, mm. and this is where I think the movie is really interesting. To him, he cannot look at them as figures on a spreadsheet. Mm. He cannot look at them as a percentage the, the, of a death toll. The, the, the simulation is too real. Well, it's, it's, the simulation isn't even a simulation to him. To him, he cannot dehumanize mm. people in the past. And I think that's something that we, we don't get a lot of in time travel stories, is the idea mm. that time travel stories tend to be very focused on an individual. I'm tra- going back in time to change something for me, or because it's my mission, or maybe yeah. I meet a couple of people. Here, I think what what makes Source Code really fascinating is that it's someone who is trying to work within very unusual time travel parameters to do something he's told is impossible. He refuses to believe that he can't prevent this train from exploding and save Mm -hmm. all these lives. He refuses to accept that. And whether or not he will is a huge part of the film. But more than anything else, I mean, this is a story, this is a post-9-11 story. I think it's one of the more interesting post-9-11 genre tales where it's basically... Everyone who died is not a statistic. Mm. They're a real human being, and they deserve to be seen as a human being, even as we do sort of an academic research of the event. Mm. And we can never lose sight of that. And losing sight of that makes us lose sight of humanity. Mm. And I think that's a very thoughtful premise for what is basically an interesting time loop thriller. And I think it elevates what could have just been like yet another... It's Groundhog Day with a bomb. Yeah. And I think it elevates that into something that is legitimately smart and distinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Jake Gyllenhaal character in this yeah. is uh, slowly unraveling as the film goes on. Yeah. Uh, he is told that this is a simulation, and that's mm-hmm. the conceit of the, the movie. That he's being uh, sort of shunted into... He's, like, he's essentially playing a video game. Uh, and uh, yeah. somehow, and they don't really explain how... But they've managed to uh, get a, a completely accurate three D model mm-hmm. of the of the world as it looked prior right prior to the accident. Yeah, 
And it's kind of like deja vu rules. If you remember the Ridley Scott movie, uh, sorry, Tony Scott movie, Deja Vu. I didn't see Deja Vu. Oh, oh, it's quite good. It almost made my list actually. But there's there's a cool time travel thing in that one where it's all it's also about there was a terrorist attack and we're trying to solve it. Mm. But the idea is we cannot necessarily go back through time. What we do have is a window in time, and that window is always open. To there's a specific number like two days, three hours, seven minutes, and five seconds ago. Okay, and as you can you can look anywhere you want at that exact moment in time in the past, but it's moving forward as we are. Okay. So you can't go back again. Mm. You can't look at things from the different angle. You can only look at it exactly two days, three hours, mm. five seconds, whatever it was. That's an interesting conceit. Yeah, and it's got a very particular yeah, rule the, set to it. Uh, I, I wish that source code had gone into that a little bit more because that's mm. an like how did they get this simulation? Uh, yeah. Because he's not being sent back in time; he's being sent into a simulation, and they're very explicit about that. And they're in explicit fact, about that, but they're they, also being a little misleading, and there are elements of the plot that I don't want to reveal yeah, that are that complicated. There's there's a few there's a few things uh, yeah that they're not communicating to Jake Gyllenhaal, which will be reveal, revealed later in the movie, but. Uh, the, there, there's a like a, a bit of a time travel twist as well in the movie. Yeah. But there, this uh, might actually be more yeah. time travel-y than going back and reliving a recording. Yeah. Um, there's a reason I put it on the I list. Think, I, I, I think the reason I can't get behind source code and the reason I, I just don't like the movie yeah. uh, is because the character never is told constantly yeah. that this is a simulation he can't do anything about it. Yeah. And as such, he's constantly distracted. And I wanted him to just wise up and get the job done, because that's a more interesting story than him freaking out about not being able to save a recording. See, here, and, here's, uh, <laughs> and here's the irony. That's why I like the movie. Okay. I like that a character's humanity hmm. is getting in the way of their logical thought processes, and mm-hmm. that the movie has a legitimate conversation and a legitimate back and forth about whether or not that's the, that's the right or wrong thing to do. Hmm. It's not clear cut. And I actually right. think that there, I think it's having interesting conversations. If, I think because the, the, the ending might be a bit polarizing. Some people hmm. like it, some people don't. But I think ultimately... The fact that it's having an unusual conversation and the time travel sort of schism mm. is what really makes this such a corker for me. I, I think uh, if if it had been uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal character was sort of a calm and compassionate character, mm. and the Vera Farmiga and, and Jeffrey Wright character, it's Jeffrey Wright too, right? Yeah, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, uh, I think she plays his boss or sort of partner or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if if the scientists were a lot like colder and more distant yeah and he were warm and compassionate then I think that would read a little bit better mm. but they're actually very calm and logical and he is unraveling and kind and going kind of mad mm-hmm. so I don't trust him I don't trust Jake Gyllenhaal well, I trust yeah. the the doctors i'm on their side in this story well i think that i think that makes it a little bit more challenging doesn't it because otherwise it's pretty mm. like otherwise your your first thought would be mm. well of course the person who believes in humanity is in like in like you know human empathy is right and the cold-hearted oh. scientists are wrong yeah of course but i think the way that they play it makes it not a foregone conclusion and i think that makes it more interesting uh, well i i think it just doesn't click together that's all we disagree it's, on it's, this one. it's not a movie i like uh, we disagree it's fair mm. controversy already what's your next pick <laughs> um i'm going to choose one from uh, 2014 okay which i think was uh, around the time of source code it's a little later uh, but not yeah around around the era uh, and this is uh 
time travel causality loops par excellence, mm-hmm. and it's called Predestination. Oh, okay. Uh, That's a, that almost made my list. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I've been wanting to revisit this one because I know it tackles some um, very pointed subjects, and I want to make sure it covers them well. Yeah. But I remember being just really dazzled by the audacity of this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's done... Uh, Written and directed by the Spirig Brothers, who also did Daybreakers, the, mm-hmm. the vampire movie. Which is a very clever vampire movie. C- clever, cons- like, ugly to look at, but a very cl- clever conceit. Yeah, if, if you want to, like, look at, like, a distinct, mm. uh, uh, very unusual take on vampire rules, Daybreakers thinks it out very thoroughly. Yes. <laughs> In a very uh, unusual way, and they also have a very valid point to make with it. I think it's a smart film, mm. but uh, but yeah, predestination. It's based it's based on a Heinlein story, isn't it? Uh, yeah, based, it's based on a Robert A. Heinlein yeah. uh, story, and it's about a like a, a some sort of spy for some yeah. shadowy organization played by Ethan Hawke. Yeah, and uh, Ethan Hawke goes to a bar one evening and has a conversation with a young man, mm. and the young man tells his story, uh, and we flash back to the young man's life and the young man uh, was born uh, Jane mm-hmm. played, uh, by uh, Sarah played by Sarah Snook uh, and we learn Jane's story and how Jane uh, was an orphan and how Jane was also uh, recruited into some sort of mysterious space force and how Jane had a child with this mysterious man at some point uh, and how uh, over the course of working for the space force some I think it was at this point where time travel was sort of introduced. Mm -hmm. And uh, through the plot conceits of the movie, Jane was essentially forced to transition to male. Yes. And Uh, I believe, I believe they also clarify at the beginning that uh, John, hmm. uh, as they come to be known, uh, was always intersex. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And uh, so they're, they transition to male Hmm. And then they have a very different set of adventures, and at some point, their John's adventures intersect with Ethan Hawke, mm. and Ethan Hawke... Let me put this way. There's a mad bomber in this movie, and it's the eighth most important thing in the film. <laughs> this is an but incredibly how... intricately plotted mm. time travel epic the, with, like, three when, characters. When everything locks into place at the end, uh-huh. your mind is completely blown. Uh-huh. How all the stories kind of eventually overlap. Because it's time travel. Everything yeah. happens sort of out of sequence. And it takes you a little while to figure out how these things... Like, how, what the timeline of events actually is. Yeah, and they do track. It, it yeah. is well well thought out even though it what we're watching at some point you're going to cl- realize is a paradox yeah and as a result it shouldn't make sense but in your head you can put it together because the movie's so elaborately constructed um well, I, it's a very smart movie and the thing that i cannot get over over and over again of this movie is how fucking amazing sarah snook is sarah snook is a am- she i'm glad she has she has a job on that show succession yeah huge show huge which show. yeah she, so she's got a great job on a great show and i'm glad she did yeah because this movie was like a, a clarion call like she was gonna yeah. be big and not something. a lot of people saw it unfortunately when it yeah. first came out but i i think i think the right people saw it and realized we need to give this person a lot of work forever yeah yeah, yeah. sarah snook is so good in yeah this movie. it's 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 the kind of uh it's a role a lot of people couldn't play. Yeah. And Sarah Snook nails it. And I wasn't familiar with Sarah Snook when I saw this movie. I saw this movie at a festival. Um, and I hadn't really seen any of the Spirit Brothers' other work. I knew who Ethan Hawke was, obviously. Uh, and I hadn't read the Heinlein story it was based on. So it was all pure discovery for me. And this is just, just one of the most tightly constructed 
time travel tales. Mm. Like it really is. Like it's just it's fantastic. It it deals with some issues because of the idea of forced transitioning. Uh, mm. That I I want to revisit this movie. I haven't revisited it since shortly after it came out. Uh, and just to see how that holds up and well, how they handle those yeah, the, those topics and whether or not those things are still, I don't I don't think they're in bad faith, but I they might not necessarily be handled with a lot of delicacy or t- grace. Yeah, t- completely tastefully. Um, it, it's more of a plot conceit. Uh, it, I don't I don't know what. Uh, yeah, I, I would have to watch it again to really sort of get a better handle on its sexual politics. Um, but as a story, mm. it, it does function incredibly well, and I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, my mind often boggles at people who can construct not just a story. Anyone can construct a beginning, middle, and mm. end, even if it's bad. Uh, but to construct this kind of sort of Mobius strip of a movie, yeah, and to keep all the pieces in place and to have it fall together this well is nothing short of incredible. And yeah, predestination is pretty damn great. And I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, let's see. What do I what do I want to pick next? All right, I'm gonna go with a film that um, I think people forget about sometimes. Okay. Uh, this is a film from the mid 1980s. It's got an incredible cast. It's got an Oscar winning filmmaker. And yeah, I hardly ever hear it discussed. It's got Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. It's got Nicolas Cage. It's got uh, um. Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner. Thank you. <laughs> and it's directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It's called Peggy Sue Got Married. That's a. Fu- it's it's. I haven't seen this since yeah. I was a kid, so I can't confidently speak to it. The, this, but this movie I, came, I, it has a fun premise. This movie came out around the same time as the Back to the Future uh, first Back to the Future film. I think it was one year after, give or take. Um, and as a result, because it doesn't have that kind of um, impish glee. That Back to the Future has, I think a lot of people don't remember it as fondly, or they don't uh, revisit it as much. And yet, this is the version of going back in time to high school in the 1950s that always excited my imagination more, and it always (laughs) made me think more about, what would I do in that situation? And the plot is this, uh, Kathleen Turner and Nicolas Cage were high school sweethearts. Uh, And then they're going to their, like, 30-year reunion, give or take. Mm. Um, And they're miserable. Their marriage is, is a shambles. They hate the, the path that their life was on. And then something happens and Kathleen Turner uh, collapses. And then she wakes up in her own body in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Going to school, she's currently dating Nicolas Cage. And she realizes very quickly she has an opportunity to change everything. And she goes for it. <laughs> like, it's not like I have to save the time. Like, no, no, no. I'm going to fix the timeline. I'm going to make sure everything happens the way I want it to happen. She even in- invents pantyhose, if I recall. There's a bit. There's a, there's, she she uh, she doesn't know who to talk to about this time travel stuff because it's not really her forte. But she knows, like, one nerd in school. And she ends up talking to him about it. Mm. And in exchange for his help, she agrees to give him, like, tips on what will make money in the future. So, like, one of the things is, like, um, um, this is the 80s, for example. So, like, very large portable boomboxes were very in mm. at the moment. She says, all technology gets smaller, except portable radios, which get huge. <laughs> so, full of stuff like that. And so, but what I love about it is that she's absolutely not concerned with the thing that almost every time travel movie is, which is preserving the timeline. Mm. She wants to make life better for herself and the people around her. 
She is going to break up with Nicolas Cage. She's going to pursue a relationship with the hunky poet guy. She wants to change her life. But what she discovers in her mind of a, of a middle-aged person who is filled with regret and, and hindsight is twenty twenty, is that as she lives the life of a teenager... She remembers what it was like to be a teenager and how all of the decisions that she made seemed logical at the time. Mm. And even though she may hate the person that her uh, that Nicolas Cage becomes, she loves who he is now. And she can't bring herself not to be with him. Because he's he's mm. he's a delight. Decent fellow. Nicolas Cage gives such a weird fucking performance in this movie. He's doing the most weird, unnecessarily like elaborate like voice. They just wanted him to be Nicolas Cage, and he decided to just go like into a completely different direction and just play like a like a extreme character actor performance. And he's great. I love him. I love the bit where she's like, "Okay, listen, you wanted you wanted to be in a doo wop group, and I happen to know for a fact." She doesn't tell him, but she happens to know for a fact that that never went anywhere. So she's like, "I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him a hit song before it's written." <laughs> and so she gives him the Beatles song, "She Loves You." Okay. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you. And she gives it to him and she's like, hey, you know, this is pretty good. This is a pretty good song. I changed the yeah, yeah, yeah's to ooh, ooh, ooh. Is that, a, I think that's okay. She's like, don't change the song. <laughs> <laughs> Adorable. It's so fucking funny. It's very, very clever. It's, it's, doesn't have like the uh, Zemeckis's extreme nostalgia for the period. Yeah. It acknowledges that some of the period sucked, but like, yeah, I like this one a lot, and I like that the character is in a position to just resolve plot. She's trying to resolve her life, and that always just made me, to this day, when I think of that movie, I think about, like, what would I do? In a way that I don't think about when I think of Back to the Future. Like, oh, well, of course yeah. I have to get my parents back together. That's just the plot. I don't have agency. I don't have a purpose. Oh. She has a purpose. And Kathleen Turner is wonderful. Nicolas Cage is wonderful. Jim Carrey is a small role. He's very good. Um it's a rock solid film. People don't talk about it enough, and I like it a lot. Yeah, Peggy yeah. Sue got married. Uh, something th- this film isn't on my list, but um, something that aggravates me about um, Avengers mm. Endgame, which yeah. is a time travel movie. Yeah, uh, there, there's a, a big conceit where they can all go back in time, and they do so to grab magical widgets that the, would the help them. The Infinity Stone. The Infinity Stone. They're they're called they're gems. They're called gems in the comics. They, they used to be gems. Now they're stones. Well, here's the deal. No, no one's refined them and like cut them so they look real nice. Yeah, so they're just like rocks in yeah. this one. Yeah. In, in, in the comics, yeah, they're like smooth, shiny ovals. Yeah. Uh, they go back in time to get these magical stones. Uh, and there is far too much dialogue in that film devoted to... Uh, the notion that there's no causality in this world. Yeah. That they can go back in time and grab these things and use them in the present and then go back in time again and put them back. Yeah. And if they if they do that, then everything will be back to normal. Yeah. Uh, uh, that concept was introduced to me in my next pick, which is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit where uh, uh, Bill and Ted, who are... Uh, not none too bright rock and roller surfer dudes from San Dimas, California. San Dimas, California. There's nothing there. No, the it's terrible. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's just it, <clears throat> it, there's there's a joke in it that like the only thing that they've got is a water park. Yeah, and which, which is true. Which is San, true. Yeah. San Dimas has uh, raging waters in the in the film they call it Waterloo. Also, when uh, I was a kid, they had a they had the biggest comic book store I knew of at the time. It was called I'm Comics. 
<laughs> and it was great. And we, we were never in San Dimas, so we only visited like twice. Yeah, cause but I always remember it because it was great. It, it's a bit of a drive out of Los Angeles yeah, it's a pain to, in the butt, to get yeah. to San Dimas. Um, but there's a bit where those two characters uh, have to break into a police station. It's like, well, we don't, yeah. we can't just break into a police station. Well, we'll uh, we'll go back in time and we'll get your dad's keys because your dad's a cop, and we'll leave them by the sign. Oh, here they are. <laughs> <laughs> and we know. So, and, 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 so we have to leave a note so you remember to do that later, <laughs> so we can do it now. Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, oh no, we're we're, we're cornered by the cops. Remember a trash can, and then a trash can falls on them. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, <laughs> like the. They can just manifest that stuff because well, they had the idea. There's a great that. gag in the sequel, which is less of a time travel movie than this one. Where there's some um, time travel, but yeah, yeah, most, they, they die and go to hell in that there, one. There's a villain in that one, and they're doing the gag, and it's just like, yes, but at the end, I will go back in time, and I will give myself a bigger gun. Yeah. And Bill and Ted finally just say, you forget one thing, dude. Only the winner of this battle can go back in time. We gave you that gun. <laughs> and it's a fake gun, yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, like... Going back in time and like leaving something for you to find that yeah. makes sense, but in in Bogus Journey it just like appears in his hand. It's like wait, that, that's not time travel. It's just magic at that point. Ah. That, anyway, I, the I, point I, of I Bill still and like Ted because it's really crazy. Oh, Bill and uh, Bogus Journey. I almost prefer it actually, but Bill and Ted's uh, excellent adventure. Uh, Bill and Ted are slackers. And they're about to fail high school like history class. They're going to fail their high school history class, run by um, uh, Bernie Casey. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. And uh, they are visited in the night uh, by a time traveler played by George Carlin, who explains <laughs> that in the future, who's you're playing the... it straight by the oh, way. Oh yeah, he's, he's not doing the comedy. Bit. He has a couple of funny jokes, but he's not doing funny. George Carlin. Mm. He tells them like in the future, you were the two most important people who ever lived. You're like however, the messiahs of the future. However. If you fail this history class, <laughs> Ted, I think it's Bill, will have to go to military school. Or is it Ted? Ted, Ted? Ted is Keanu Reeves, and he yeah. has to go to military yeah. Ted, school. Ted, will, Ted is told by his father, if you fail this class, I'm going to send you off to military school, and that will break up them and their band, mm-hmm. and all of his and all of the future will be doomed. And so what Rufus, the George Carlin character, says is, here's what I'm going to do. Here's a phone booth that is also a time machine. I'm going to leave this here. You do all of the things you need to do in order to pass to a history re- to test. To research history by going there. Yep. And then uh, come back and, su- and get pass your test. And that's uh. basically the whole vibe. It's basically an American ripoff of Doctor Who. Here's this like yeah. here's this like small like it's a small box it's a phone booth it's a phone booth but so is the, so is the Doctor Who yeah the uh, police box the the yeah. TARDIS as it's called in Doctor Who yeah, yeah. it's it's a, a police box which I don't know how long they were in use in England but there's a telephone in it yeah and the idea is you can go in there lock yourself in in case you're being pursued yeah and call the police on the phone on the inside yeah you know, prior to the invention of cell phones exactly so that was what the TARDIS was like disguised yeah, and, as and that got broken from, in episode what one I, uh, and they never changed it from what I understand um it was a cost-saving measure by yeah. the by the studio. They they wanted to make this show. It's like, well, we don't have like we don't want to build a spaceship. Yeah. So uh, we ha- but we have this police box prop. So we're going to use that's our spaceship. It's in disguise, that's more or our- less. But like, so Bill and Ted's version of that is we're just going to use a phone booth, mm. and it's going to be a bunch of slackers going back in time, meeting historical figures, and learning from them and getting in adventures with them, which is about what one third of Doctor Who episodes are about: is going back in time and to an important historical time or mm. meeting a meeting. Yeah. A historic figure, meeting yeah. sort of figure, and that's so basically that's the Bill and Ted slacker version of Doctor Who. It's a delight, is it's, what it is. Well, it, it 
It uses time travel in a completely non-intellectual way. Yeah. Uh, Bill and Ted are none too bright. No, uh, they're good heart. They got good hearts. Th- yeah, they're, they're not bad people. They're, they're adorable they're people. Yeah. There is one thing they're, in this movie that really pisses me it's, off. Is it's a slur. <laughs> there's one bit where they get a little scared and they get like a little close to each other for like comfort, and then there's a moment of gay panic and there's yeah, a slur, there's... and that that was sadly all too common. Yeah, in it, the era it, it that you'll was, hear that in other like PG thirteen, that kind of joke was really common. And, yeah, it's uh, it's only one instance that I can recall, but it it does suck. Yeah, it does. It, 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 it does, hurts the film. It, it hurts the film, but it hasn't, it's, hasn't aged terribly. And, well. and I believe the people involved, and they all said we regret that that's in there. Yeah, but yeah. like. It, it's one part of the movie. It doesn't completely destroy it, but that part sucks, and I'm not going to pretend mm-hmm. it doesn't. All the rest of it is just charming and sweet. Yeah. Um, th- this is a, a great role for Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Uh, Keanu Reeves, a, a wonderful man. Mm-hmm. Uh, near, as, very, near as anyone can tell. A very kind person, from what mm-hmm. I've heard. Very passionate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... Uh, I think many people would agree with me when I say he's not the best actor. Uh, you give him the right role, he's yeah. good. You don't give him the right role, he's not. Yeah, they uh, they made two sequels. They made Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and then many many years later, they made Bill and Ted Face the Music, mm-hmm. where they're adults. They're in their fifties now, and they still haven't had that hit. Yeah, they still, their band still hasn't made it. They, and it's it's pretty sharp how much better an actor Alex Winter is yeah. than Keanu Reeves in that movie. <laughs> Like Alex, Alex, Alex Winter's like, been out of the acting game for a yeah, while. He's mostly but, been directing. But he's there for it. He's Alex really, Winter really sells it. And, yeah. and Keanu Reeves is just like, yeah, I'm just sort of hanging out and having fun. That's a movie. Bill and Ted Face the Music is wonderfully written. Very, very clever. The budget Need, is way too low. The budget is too low. And I like, get they, that they, they really worked with they what cut they, a lot of corners in that it, movie. It's, and, and not in the cute way. In the, yeah, if this movie was like $10, 20000000 million more expensive... It would have been just everything. Yeah. It would have been so fucking great. It's still wonderful, and it's still it's still a very solid capper to yeah. it. And it's I like that they I like what they do to. Without ruining it, what we know about the future of Bill and Ted mm. wasn't the whole story, and the story that we get is nice. Yeah. It's a really yeah. good addition. It's a really good change. I love the characters of their kids. Yeah, uh, it's just really really wonderful. Um, so I, I, I remember. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'm gonna give a little. It, it, this didn't make my list, but it, for me, face the music is like a. It's like almost a tie with yeah, this and, one. And, I think they're good companion pieces. And uh, yeah, face the music ties in. Um, they're going to hell and the time travel thing, and it, like all of that is in the in the third movie. <sighs> yeah, it's all connected. Uh, <laughs> I I think there's just there might be something wrong with my imagination yeah. because when I heard that they were making Bill and Ted face the music, it's like, okay, we're going to catch up with these characters in their fifties and they haven't had their hit yet. I thought, Oh great. This is going to be like, Mm. like a really downbeat, talky, depressive movie where they just sort of have to face the fact that they're not living up to their potential that they thought they had as teens. And they were told that they were going to be important when they were teens, which is something teens hear a lot. And they reach middle, they reach middle age and they can't, they just can't do it anymore. And I thought it was just going to be them bumming around uh, San Dimas talking mm. about that and like working their jobs and being parents. Yeah. Which would be nice too. I, uh, when I heard there were going to be fantasy elements, <laughs> I was upset. It's like, oh, oh no, I don't want there to be time. Like the first two are all crazy time travel, going to the afterlife kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought the third one was going to be like the opposite of that. No, they, they turned it into another fantasy epic. Yeah. Uh, well, my next pick is a total uh, a total shift because this is a Bill and Ted's very light, mm. very frothy story. It's great, uh, but this is actually maybe one of the most severe films on my list. Mm. Uh, but uh, it's got just one hell of a pedigree. Like, just listen to listen to this cast. 
Okay? We got Sterling Hayden. Mm. We got Ben Gazzara. We got Eva Marie Saint. We got Robert Shaw. We got Peter Sellers. It's directed by two-time Oscar winner Joseph Mankiewicz. Okay. And it's written by Rod Serling. (laughs) This is a TV movie called Carol for Another Christmas. I've never heard of this movie. I hadn't either until uh, I read about it in uh, uh, Alonzo Duralde's book, Have Yourself a Movie, Little Christmas. Okay. Uh, And there's a whole... That's a great book and it is basically detailing... It's... You know, there have been more Christmas movies since it's been published, so it's not entirely up to date, but it's a really, really great look at the history of Christmas movies. Mm. And there's an entire chapter dedicated exclusively to adaptations of Charles Dickens as a Christmas Carol, which is a time travel story. People forget that because it's also like a fantasy story and a Christmas story, but it's a story about someone who has had a terrible life and is visited by three spirits, one of whom takes him back in time Mm. to visit... Himself in his uh, in his past and see how far he's come and how far he's deteriorated. One person who shows him other things that are going on in the present or more of a more teleportation than time travel, and another one that takes him into the future where he sees the consequences of his actions and the impact they had on not just uh, his own legacy but on the people around him. Every version of A Christmas Carol pretty much is a time travel story. Yeah. One of my favorite versions is actually it's a TV special. I thought it would be cheating. But uh, speaking of Doctor Who, uh, the Doctor Who Christmas Carol uh, is great. Uh, it is, it's got flying sharks uh, and it's, it's, it's a delight. And I highly recommend it. It makes me cry. I need to rewatch it. But um, Carol for Another Christmas was a 1964 TV movie that reframed the story of A Christmas Carol as a modern political allegory. And the protagonist, the Scrooge character, is played by Sterling Hayden. He's an American industrialist, he's very wealthy. And he believes very strongly in American isolationism. He believes that we need to take care of our own, but we're actually not even going to be doing that too much. <laughs> but uh, And this was basically uh, uh, written and designed in order to support uh, the mission of the UN, the United Nations. It's about globalism. Okay. He is visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Uh, he is sent uh, back to when he was in World War II, and he saw uh, the enormous uh, amount of suffering and uh, violence that occurred in World War II, uh, in part because Americans stayed out of the war for so long. Um, he is uh, encouraged in the presence to... Um, there's a great sequence where... You know, like in the in the, I, I, I think I'm remembering this correctly. It's been a while since I've seen it. If you remember, the Ghost of Christmas Present usually has a big feast around mm. him. He's he's full of he's, covered, he's got lots of wine and and uh, delicious uh, a delicious banquet. Well, in this version, he is asked to eat all of that food uh, while all the starving children in the world watch him right next to him. <laughs> like it's easy to forget about them when they're not right there, but now mm. they're right here. Go on, have your lunch. Go on. Like it's it's right in his face, but uh, it's effective. Something from uh, Five Obstructions. We talked about the Five yeah. Obstructions on on one of our podcasts. It was the uh, best movie start with the letter F. Oh, we did go. that very recently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, when he goes into the Christmas uh, future, he realizes that uh, by not thinking globally, by by uh, being um, um, concerned only with uh, America and uh, our own sort of uh, nuclear future. The world has ended and is now run by Peter Sellers, who is a maniac. <laughs> and of course, Peter Sellers plays him as a maniac. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bizarre sequence filled with lots of like circular childlike logic. Um, it's obviously very in your face. Rod Sterling was not a subtle uh, a 
thematic storyteller. Goodness, he no. did not want in, and but I think this was by design. I think you could look at it as oh, he could have been subtler. He did not believe that he had the luxury of being subtle because he was trying to make definite points. And I think the greatest skill of Rod Sterling when he was firing all cylinders, which he often was, is that he would take these incredibly blunt allegories. Almost every episode of Twilight Zone would get that, would have an episode of, of some shitty YouTube show complaining about how woke it is today. Uh, because he, he wanted to use genre fiction in order to make salient points about contemporary society, politics, war, and, and other uh, uh, areas of concern. He's taking the sort of uh, political underpinning of A Christmas Carol, where we're looking at here is what a wealthy person who is selfish has to learn. But whereas Dickens was more concerned about his interpersonal relationships and his soul, Rod Sterling is saying, here's someone who has the power to change the world. Here's someone who is so wealthy that their impact could be huge. And by not acting upon that, by only concerning themselves with their own selfish ends, that's not just like, oh, he's not a nice person. That is an act of like incontrovertible evil. Mm-hmm. And we need to be clear about that. And we need to do that in such a way that the story doesn't feel just finger-wagging and didactic, but is actually like, deeply absorbing and challenging and exciting. And that's a Carol for Another Christmas. So if you've never seen it, and I know a lot of people have never even heard of it, please see it. It's so goddamn good. It is easily one of my two or three favorite adaptations of A Christmas Carol, which of there are no shortage of good versions. Uh, and it's, again, amazing fucking cast. Joseph Mankiewicz directed it. Rod Sterling wrote it. What, what, what more do you need? <laughs> Seek it out. It's so fucking good. Uh, yeah, I, that's... yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> I know, it's great, right? I, I blew my mind when I found out that was real. Like, I, I seriously thought, if you recall, in the Golden Turkey Awards, it was a mm-hmm. book uh, that uh, came out in the late 70s, early 80s, that was a collection of uh, little short you know, articles, blurbs, about mm-hmm. films that film critics had seen that they confidently could consider the worst. Uh-huh. And I've seen many of the films that were in that book. Most of them really are terrible. A few of them I thought got a bum rap, but mostly it's like, no, that's that's legitimately difficult to watch. That's a genuinely painfully badly made movie. Um, one of the gags in that book, though, and they, they reveal it in the book, one of the films is made up. One of the films didn't exist. <laughs> they were just testing people? Yeah, they were just. there was a joke. It was like, hey, listen, one of the books in here is not real. One of the movies in this book is not real. Try to guess which one. And that's sort of like a little puzzle for you to solve. And I remember reading a lot of this book, and I was just like... Is that the Golden Turkey movie? Is you just make this up to see if we're paying attention? But no, it's real. I found it. It's great. Okay. Every once in a while, they show it on Turner Classic Movies. Um, I don't know if it's had a proper home video release, but it's way easier to find now than it used to be. You used to have to like go to a museum to watch it. Mm. You can find it now. Please find it. It's so fucking good. Anyway, what's you got next? Uh, my next one's going to be a bit of a twofer. Okay. Uh, because it's a, a film that was remade, and I w- would like to recommend both. Okay. Uh, one is Chris Marker's La Jetée. Ah, oh, I knew you were going to do this. And, uh, and the other is Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys. I'm so glad you did this because uh, I couldn't make room for them. 
Okay. <laughs> so I'm glad you did it because I well, we, they're great. Like any overlap here. Um, yeah, La Jete, yeah. Uh, came out in 1962. It's a 28 minute film, mm. and uh, it's, it's composed almost entirely of still photographs. Yeah, there's only one moving shot at the yeah. end. Everything else yeah. is like sort of like this quick moving slideshow. And it's and it's subtle too. Like if you're if you're not careful, you could even miss it. Like it's such a great use yeah. of that. It's a, a weirdest reference in the world. Cameron Crowe rips off that moment in We Bought a Zoo. <laughs> It's very bizarre. There's a weird sequence in We Bought a Zoo where like, what the fuck? Totally ripped it off from La Jete. La Jete. Amazing reference. Anyway, yeah, but go on. La Jete, which means the, the jetty. Like, uh, and it's about um, a man who's living in, in a prison in the future after World War III. Hmm. And some scientists have been looking for people they can send back in time whose minds are strong enough to stand it. Evidently going yeah. back in time like drives you insane. Yeah. Uh, and they send our protagonist back in time, and he is—he has always carried with him because he remembers prior to the war when he was a young boy. Mm. And one of his sharpest memories is uh, seeing something at the jetty mm. when he was a young boy, uh, an airport, and mm. you know planes are taking off. He sees somebody running through the airport, and he sees somebody dying. Mm. He's pretty sure he saw a man die. Uh, and they, he's obsessed with it. He's obsessed with sort of finding this moment. So they send him back in time. Uh, you see where this is going already. Um, <laughs> they send him back in time with this device that can somehow restore the timeline. Uh, in 12 Monkeys, it was a virus. There was like a plague that had broken out. And it was about trying to stop the plague from spreading. Uh, in La Jete, it's they don't even show it. It's not like explicitly... Yeah. Science fiction, like we know mm-hmm. it's science fiction because of the narration, mm-hmm. but a lot of everything's really kind of low budget, uh, and it looks really stark and painful. The future, there's a lot it's, of shots of the main character, like with these uh, sort of goggles glued to his eyes, or yeah. like pulling on things with his teeth. It just looks like he's con- in constant agony. It's no, almost like hell. No, nobody did sci-fi the way the French New Wave did sci-fi. Do you ever see yeah. Alphaville? Uh, it, it's what not a. a favorite Godard of mine but yeah yeah I don't like it either uh, but like it's the one like yes it takes place in a futuristic society it's just I just picked buildings that looked kind of futury yeah and, and that's and basically and people it. just wearing like coats and hats so. yeah it's like we're not actually trying that no one's actually trying to make it look super futuristic mm. it's just the general vibe yeah <laughs> that's what we're going for this takes place in the future take our word for it uh, this one, like, it doesn't look futuristic, but it does look really alien. It looks really strange. Uh, it looks really disturbing. There's, like, really something kind of nightmarish about La Jete. Uh, Terry Gilliam remade this in the mid-90s. Uh, Bruce Willis played the man that was sent back in time. And the conceit with uh, the feature film was that he ended up in the present trying to stop this virus, but now there was... Because being sent back in time sort of altered his mind, there was now some doubt as to whether or not he really was from the future. Yeah, am I just am like, I just losing my mind, yeah, or is this actually from, real? Is yeah. this like some sort of uh, like schizophrenic delusion that I'm having? And uh, he ends up uh, pairing up with Madeline Stowe, who plays a psychiatrist. So you know, of course, they had to expand the expand the plot a little bit for a feature film. I think just sort of Terry Gilliam's chaos and insanity plays the story very well. And there's mm. a really interesting sequence early on where uh, he visits, uh, Bruce Willis visits the surface of the planet uh, looking for like animal samples and animals have sort of overrun everything on the, the surface world. And he's wearing this really cool outfit, which was nominated for an Academy Award, that outfit. Um, oh yeah, there was this weird fucking thing, and uh, if you remember the Academy Awards that oh, year, they did a fashion show that they year. They did a fashion but show. One so of it was Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, it's like a bunch of people like in like these classical old 
old-timey outfits. Like, oh, yes, how very, how very official. And then here's this guy covered in this, like, super weird plastic bubble and tubes. Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's like, kind of lurching through. But yeah. they put a model in it. So yeah, it's, like, it's trying to walk weird. like he's oh, on a model. so fucking well. weird. Uh, Brad Pitt was nominated for Academy Award. He yeah, plays this first Academy Award nomination. This yeah. character who is also like a mentally unbalanced to uh, mm. might have some information that's helpful to the Bruce Willis character. I, I'll never forget he won the Golden Globe mm. for that movie. It means nothing, but he did. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, the, the Golden Globes are a meaningless award. But uh, he, the, I will never forget his acceptance speech because he went up there and grabbed his Golden Globe and he said, "I would like to thank the makers of Ko Pectate." <laughs> <laughs> Which is what you take if you have diarrhea. And I was like, that's a great example. <laughs> Not taking it seriously at all. Yeah, yeah uh, 12 Monkeys was this, yeah, this weird Oscar, dar- well, Oscar Dark Horse. Not really darling that year. But yeah, I got some Academy Award nominations. Uh, it's one of Terry Gilliam's more accessible movies. Uh, his movies tend to be like aggressively unwatchable. Yeah. Uh, even, even and he, he even did one uh, that almost made my list, but didn't called Time Bandits, which is another mm. time travel movie, um, where, where there's just a lot of elements of chaos. And you know, if, if you can jive with Terry Gilliam's chaos, then that's fine. Uh, watching Terry Gilliam films is also a little fraught yeah. because of some horrible things he said recently. Yeah, he's not a of, he's not a great guy. He uh, like spoke out against the Me Too movement. Yeah, and, and there's been uh, people said signed that, petitions like to exonerate yeah. Roman Polanski. So if he's, you, he's if not, you've ever not heard, the most uh, decent fellow. Sarah Polly has talked about uh, making mm. her uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen with him mm. and how she gradually came to realize just how much she was mistreated on that set. In particular, yeah, she, she was endangered yeah, she, by she, the shooting she, conditions. Yeah, she was... Uh, there was like explosions on set and she was really terrified and, yeah. and nobody listened to her complaints because she was yeah. a girl. And, and there were um, legitimate yeah. actual concerns that yeah. she could have literally uh, died. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, although they, they put out Time Bandits uh, or, uh, excuse me, Baron Munchausen on, yeah. uh, on Blu-ray and Sarah Polly said, you know what? I want people to watch this movie. It's actually a really good yeah. movie. I was terrified. You have my blessing. She, she's, written, so, she's written about how her feelings about the film have changed over time. It's really elegant stuff. You should totally yeah. check it out. Well, Sarah yeah. Polly's a brilliant writer. She is a brilliant writer. I'm just saying. you should. But she's written about how her perspective on that movie and that experience have evolved over mm-hmm. time and, and changed dramatically. Um, and I'm not sure where she is at at the moment, but she has gone back and forth on it multiple yeah, times. Well, yeah. at, like just a couple days ago, she said, yeah. you have my blessing okay. to watch Baron. I didn't realize it was that recent. So, well, um, speaking, speaking of Terry Gilliam though, I did put time bandits on. Me. Okay. <laughs> uh, right, talk about time bandits. Time bandits. And again, Terry Gilliam's a shit, but, uh, time bandits is still a good movie. And, um, it's a very creative and interesting movie. And it's a very bleak movie, actually. It's ostensibly a kid's film. It's about a kid uh, who is growing up in, like, the I think it's the early 80s. And his parents are just consumers. Hmm. That's it. They're not interested in life, art, poetry, history. They're just watching TV. They've never taken the plastic off of anything that they owned. Just to keep its value uh, trapped inside. And um, the kid's miserable. And then one day he's uh, uh, in his bedroom in the middle of the night and a portal opens and a whole bunch of little people pop out and they've got a map and this map that they've got leads them to different portals through time and they are on the run from God because they stole this map from God and God is constantly chasing them. What do they call God? Oh, is it like the Supreme Being or something? Yeah, I think it's just the Supreme Being. Yeah, it's not not, the word God. It's not specifically Christian, but eventually it's God. Uh, And uh, meanwhile, David Warner plays essentially the devil and that's a great fucking character. 
He's so fucking brilliant. It's a really <laughs> wonderfully wicked performance. It's like, slugs! God created slugs! I wouldn't have created slugs. I would have started with lasers. First thing, day one. <laughs> fucking great performance. But the, the, the real story here is that they, they go from time period to time period. They meet Napoleon. They meet Robin Hood. They go to weird pockets out of time where they meet giants. Uh, they keep running into Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall, who are perpetually screwed in every reincarnation that they've ever had. And it's a really tragic thing. Oh no, my condition. I must have fruit. <laughs> the, 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 the actual time bandits of the title are in it for themselves. They mm. had... They're bandits. They, well, they had, well, before they were bandits, they had shitty jobs. Mm. They were like responsible for like fungus. Like that yeah. was their job. They, they made they fungus. Were, they're divine beings. They like, were divine beings, but, but they had shitty like jobs within that infrastructure. Mm. Not everyone can be like, yes, I am the patron saint. Of cats. It's like, yeah, we, we, we make sure spores, molds, and fungus are okay. Like, it's not a fun gig. So they took this job, and they're going to steal stuff, and then just live out a life of luxury. They're purely selfish. Meanwhile, our child protagonist is actually very pure of heart. He's actually very learned. He knows about history. And what he wants more than anything else is the life and comfort that he doesn't have at home. Mm. And so he's constantly seeking that, if not from these time bandits who constantly let him down. There's a really great sequence. The movie kind of stops for a while. He is stranded in ancient Greece, and the time bandits end up being sucked away into another timeline, and we don't see them for a while. And he ends up being raised by King Agamemnon, played by Sean Connery. Mm. And he finds the father he always wanted, and everything's great. And then the time bandits show up after like a couple of months, and it's just like, "Hey, we finally found you. Let's go." It's like, "No, wait, I was finally happy." Ah! <laughs> and then he's screwed again. <laughs> it's a deeply cynical movie, but it's cynical in the way that I think kids understand it. When you're a kid, and you feel that the world is set against you, which sometimes it is. It's really hard to be a kid. Um, you don't have a lot of options. Most of the time. You don't have a lot of agency. You don't have a lot of control. You are kind of stuck in your situation a lot of the time. And you feel completely trapped. And even when things are interesting or fantastical around you, your options, again, still very limited. And you're constantly having to be sort of stuck at the whim of adults who don't necessarily know a damn thing more than you do. Yeah. Which is often, sadly, the case. That's Time Bandits. Yeah, that's it is an escapist fantasy that you cannot escape from. <laughs> and there's something really beautiful yeah. about that. It's super creative. The final like fight with the devil is one of the most like inventive and weird action sequences I've ever seen. And the actual ending of the movie, I mean the last like 30 seconds of the damn thing, you will love it or you will hate it. There is no in between. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. But I know people who hate that ending. And for me, perfection. And the, and it's the, absolute perfection. There's a cameo at the end, which was just a, 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 a bout of good timing. Yeah, uh, where they got a, the, the actor who was in that cameo just happened to be like yeah. in the neighborhood at the time. Yeah, it's like hey, can you come do this? It's like yeah, sure, I'll, I'll come. come it do worked that. out. But yeah, time bandits. Uh, it's a little. It's it's not as cynical as Twelve Monkeys. Actually, ironically, I think, I think Twelve Monkeys. His version of Twelve Monkeys by the end is actually almost a little bit more optimistic than Time Bandits is. Uh, I, I mean, they're they're not they're not happy the films. About the end of the world. No, Terry Gilliam is not an optimistic filmmaker. No. That's not that's not the way he operated. No. He's about uh, you know doing stuff like Brazil, which is like we're just yeah. lost in these Kafkaesque nightmares. Yeah. Uh, did you ever see Zero Theorem? I did. I did not like it. I I, I feel like it could have 
like stood like four or five more drafts. There's there's a nugget uh, in there. I didn't remember what the plot was exactly. It's a guy who's like he's trying to figure out this like unsolvable mathematical equation it, for the purpose the, of a corporation whose yeah. need for that equation to be solved is confusing and possibly conspiratorial. Yeah. Um, it, 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 he's essentially trying to find the unified field theorem. Yeah. Like, all matter. He has to unlock the secrets of the universe, but because it's part of his corporate job. Um, yeah. Point being, like, no matter how ambitious you are, the corporate overlords are going to, like, yeah. grind their boot down. And even the most incredible <clears throat> achievements, even the most incredible uh, discoveries in the universe will be monetized. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, monetized and completely dictated by by your corporate overlords. So yeah, yeah he, he wasn't a very optimistic filmmaker. If you can jive with his message, you're going to like his movies. Well, uh, some of them, some of them, some of them do suck. Some of them are legitimately <laughs> horrible. He's made some uh, really bad films, but, but when the, he, when they're good, he's made some really good ones. The yeah. Brothers Grimm is barely watchable. That's okay. Tideland is utterly repellent. I've heard that. I've uh, never yeah. actually <laughs> been able to sit down with it. Um, he's not. He's he, they can't all be winners. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, let's see, what do I want to talk about next? Uh, talk about all these bleak things. Um, I'm going to talk about something a little bit uh, uh, sweeter. A little bit more peppy. L- l- not peppy, just okay. uh, just more more humane. All right, what you got? Uh, more creative. Did you know that uh, The Time Machine, mm-hmm. written by H.G. Wells, was a true story? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I did. And did you know that he used that time machine to... Uh, Pursue a time-traveling criminal? <laughs> yes, I did. I, this is on my list, too. <laughs> oh, yay! This is one of the best. This I love is, this movie yeah. to pieces. Uh, Nicholas Meyer, who made uh, Star Trek Two and Star Trek Six, And helped write Star Trek Four. So yeah. most of the good ones yeah. was like uh, really directly involved. Uh, Star Trek Four, another time-travel movie, which yep. is not on my list. Same, uh, but very good. Yeah. Uh, it turns out H.G. Wells actually did invent a time machine. He wasn't just an author. He's yeah. a scientist as well, and he invented a time machine. Oh, uh, but wouldn't you know it, Jack the Ripper <laughs> steals the steals time machine. Steals the time machine. And, and escapes into and, the 1970s. And into, into 1979, which, which is yeah. when the film was made. And H.G. Wells, who is a very optimistic uh, uh, individual, thinks that he has unleashed the evils of the past into a utopia. Mm. So he chases after Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, by the way, also played also by played David, David Warner. Another, another nice. linking material. H.G. Uh, uh, Wells is played by uh, Malcolm, Malcolm McDowell. McDowell. And uh, yeah, so H.G. Wells tracks Jack the Ripper to 1979 uh, where he teams up with Mary Steenburgen Always wonderful Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> we do not get enough opportunities to talk about how great Mary Steenburgen is. Let's enjoy it. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a time traveling fugitive story, but the fugitive is Jack the Ripper, yeah, and and, uh, and Tommy Lee Jones is a very dweeby Malcolm McDowell. Like he's a total <laughs> nerd, and I love it because like. His attempt, he's a smart guy. He's attempting to acclimate to what's going on in the present. You mean H.G. Wells. What did I say? You said Tommy Lee Jones. Well, yeah, because I'm talking about The Fugitive. I was comparing to The Fugitive. Okay, all right. Yeah, but uh, H.G. Wells Wells is the Tommy Lee Jones character in The Fugitive for the purpose of this, but he's a dweeb. Um, There's so many really great bits where H.G. Wells thinks he's being clever, but he doesn't have enough context. Mm. Like, there's a bit where, like, he he's trying to tell people that there's a serial killer loose, but he's trying not to tell them about time travel. Yeah, because no one would believe him. He's not stupid. He understands that. So he decides he's going to pretend. It's not a great plan, but it's better than telling them about time travel. He's going to pretend he's a detective, 
and he's on the pursuit of a serial killer and he's telling the police because he needs their help mm. and they're like okay great what's your name and he tries to think of like a name that like he knows and will remember but surely will have been forgotten by the 1970s so he says sherlock holmes <laughs> because he assumes that a century later that will be a relatively obscure series of stories oh, and not still a zeitgeist yeah. yeah pretty safe assumption honestly but like yeah no that it it doesn't go well for him but the cops think he's a, he's a he's, he's a maniac um God, it's clever. It's, it's Everything really, about this is clever. It's got a clever premise, yeah. and, and it's a love story. Uh, yeah, because it's, good love it's story about H.G. Wells falls in love with Mary Steenburgen, yeah. and um, they um, have to. Uh, great chemistry together. Yeah, I mean, Mar- Mary Steenburgen can have chemistry with a rock. She's really it's, wonderful. I found an old. I think she inter- has, actually. <laughs> I found an, an old interview with her recently where um, uh, she was talking about another time travel movie, Back to the Future Part 3. Oh, oh uh, she, that's right. She's in that. Too. Yeah, yeah. And, and how, uh, yeah. you know, she's played like romantic parts before, but Christopher Lloyd hadn't. He'd always played yeah. these sort of like. He, wild characters. He, he, like, he had a history for many years of playing either the wacky comic character or the villain. Yeah. He was a villain a lot. He played a lot, played a lot of heavies. He Star Trek like, Three, really. Legend of the Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Buck Rabanzai. Yeah. Uh, so. He, no, Buck Rabanzai? You're thinking John Lithgow. No, uh, Christopher Lloyd's in that one too. Is he back in that one too? He's, he's one of the red electroids. Oh, weird. Okay, I forgot yeah. about that. Okay, he's, sorry. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's John Big Boutet. I forgot. Okay. No, it's fine. I just I <laughs> that, thought that movie's nutty. It's all right. If yeah. you if you would cast Christopher Lloyd in the John Lithgow role in Buckaroo Banzai, it would have also been a good movie. Yeah, John, he would have done also done I mean, great. John Lithgow's brilliant. Oh, he's <laughs> meant to, I'm, that's not a slight against John Lithgow. I'm just saying that Christopher Lloyd is also that good. Yeah. That's uh, it was meant to be a compliment to Christopher Lloyd, yeah, not an insult to John. The Lithgow. idea is. Um, Mary Steenburgen had to sort of take the romantic lead in their scenes together because he yeah. wasn't used to playing that kind of a part before. And it makes her seem like, just like extra progressive and feminist. Yeah, yeah like, it's really great. Yeah, yeah, like and it's like he kind of cows to her, and if you can get uh, like a, such a big actor like Christopher Lloyd mm-hmm. to sort of play under you, that you're doing something right. Yeah, uh, and same thing with Malcolm mm-hmm. McDowell. Mm-hmm. Like Malcolm McDowell, Malcolm McDowell has played a madman on multiple occasions: Clockwork Orange, Caligula, mm-hmm. and here he's. Like a mild gentle kind character he's so gentle yeah. like she she actually like has to be the aggressor with him because he cannot he's, he's so gentlemanly it's really cute I like to think that that Mary Steenburgen is just that powerful a performer. I believe it like she she gets paired with these sort of like maniac actors and she's like no you're 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 here with me in this scene. Yeah. They're like yeah yes we are. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's really clever. It has a an old world Hollywood feel. Yeah. It's, it's a genre picture and it takes place in 1979. And, uh, one mm. of the big conceits of the movie is Jack the Ripper makes his way into the future and he likes it there. Yeah. Everything's like, everything's evil and wicked yeah. in the future. I like all of this, yeah. like all that vice. Is Cynicism murdered. is taken hold. Yeah. And, this is yeah. exactly what I've always wanted. Uh, it's very dark speech that he has. Yeah. Um, but it feels like something that could have been made in the forties. Uh, in terms yeah, of the like, basic, the basic premise, yeah. the way the characters are treated, the dialogue they're given, the yeah. attention they give to the character moments, mm-hmm. and it's sort of slavish attention to story, uh, which gives it this. It's a time travel movie. It gives it sort of a timeless quality. Yeah, uh, and even so though even though it's set in the seventies, mm. and you know it's, it's deeply in the seventies, but because it's about a, they just travel, they could have traveled anywhere in time. Mm. So it doesn't feel as dated as it could. It just happened yeah. to go to the seventies instead of the twenty tens or whatever. Yeah, I really, really recommend Time After Time. I'm so glad you picked it too. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> I love it to pieces. It's not. It's not well known enough. 
It's so fucking good. It's very mm. clever. The character work is great. Um, yeah, it's a, it's mm. just a treat. Um, well, my next pick is uh, also there's also a serial killer in it. Okay, and it's also a tie because Hello. I picked Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you. <laughs> Okay, uh, like I said, I the, you didn't time, like a time, the time loop thing was out, like time out of my purview, but I yeah. do love Happy Death Technically Day. speaking, source code could be argued to be a time loop because he's got to relive the same bit over and over mm-hmm. again, but the rules are different yeah. than the usual Groundhog Day rules. Uh, Happy Death Day is a time loop movie. The sequel takes it in some interesting different directions, but the original is very much Groundhog Day with a serial killer. Uh, the gag is this. Uh, uh, Jessica Roth uh, plays a very stuck-up college student named Tree... What's her last name? Uh, Tree. Her, her name is Tree. Her first yeah. name is Tree. And yeah. um, and she she's she's a shit. She's not a good person. No. She's a very, very shitty person. Um, and uh, over the course of her day, she is mean to her roommate. She is uh, mean to like her boyfriend. She's also sleeping with one of her teachers. Uh, she's just walks around like the like everyone owes her something. It's also her birthday. Mm. Uh, and uh, she and a, and a lot of people hate her. A lot of people. Tree so. Gelbman. That's her last name. Tree Gelbman. I like that last. I like that name. That's a really fun name. Tree Gelbman. Now, what? A, what? A, doesn't that stick in your memory? Although apparently it didn't for me. Now, what, Jessica, um, Jessica Roth, however. Oh God, she's so good. Uh, has has the unenviable task and pulls it off with flying colors. Yeah. Of playing this really shitty character. Uh huh. That you love instantly. It's yeah, like, you don't. Even when she's a shit at the beginning, you don't hate her. Uh, you, she, you want her to grow up. She, she's, but you do yeah. not hate her. And which, and that's vital to so hard this to film do. work. It's so hard to do. Like if she were actually like a bad character, this would be a miserable film. To oh watch. yeah, I've seen movies that are trying to be super edgy, and they actually have a character who is genuinely unlikable in the lead. Mm. Uh, there was a movie earlier this year. Oh, what's it called? Was it called Dash? Dash. Dash cam. It was, yeah. from the, it was from the guy who directed uh, Host. Um, oh, d- well, Dash Cam's on Shutter now. That's like pretty new movie. Uh, yeah, it came out like, came, like a yeah. couple weeks ago. Uh, as, yeah, as Dash Cam. Yeah, and Dash it's cam, and it's yeah. about this like ultra maga sh- like shrill. It's like a vlogger uh, guy. Yeah, a, a, a woman, but yeah, um, and she's um, she's just has horrible opinions. Oh, well, he hates that's, everyone. That's not Dash Cam. Then mm. what am I thinking? Oh, I'm thinking of um, oh, there's another one I was thinking. I was a, there's I'm one coming out later one. this month, isn't there? Like also, that's like a one shot film. It's it's a, it's a found footage b- yeah. vlogger guy film. But that's called that's the, something else. I'm confusing the two. The, the one from um, uh, 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 the one from the guy who directed host. Um, uh, his name is Savage. Um, he did a film called Dash Cam that came out earlier this year. Yeah, did the festival circuit last year, and the protagonist is just she's she's supposed to be shrill and unlikable. That is the point of the character. Mm. It goes so far into that realm. I don't want to spend time with her. You oh, don't that's, want that's the risk you run. Isn't that's it? the yeah. risk you run. That's the danger of it. You're you're playing with fire and you might get burned. And in that in that case, yeah, they they burn me good. I no uh, longer care. I I confuse dash cam with dead stream. Oh, uh, dead stream is a new film, and okay. that, that's the one I was thinking of. Got so it. I apologize for that. No worries. Um, but in any case, uh, Tree is mean to everyone. She's terrible. And then at the end of the day, she is murdered. By a killer wearing uh, the mask of her uh, school or her college's mascot, which happens to be a baby, mm-hmm. like Baby New Year. Um, 
But when she's murdered, she wakes up at the beginning of the day and relives the whole day again, and then is murdered again. And no matter what she tries to do to change her circumstances, she is always murdered by that guy. Mm. And she is trying to find a way to survive the day. And it's incredibly and solve difficult. the mystery. And yeah. solve the mystery. And over the course of it, much like in the movie Groundhog Day, she becomes a better person. Uh, it's very clever. Uh, adding a murder to the end of every day, especially one that can changes no matter what they do, they're always screwed and they always get killed, mm-hmm. is incredibly clever. They actually find a way to... It's, it's difficult to make a story about a time loop feel like there's any kind of risk involved because you could always reopen the loop. Uh-huh. And here we find out that every time she's killed, her body is taking damage. Like you wake up in the morning with like scar tissue and she yeah. can only survive that for so long. So there is a limit to what she can take. Um, but it's incredibly sharp. It's incredibly well done. And it works. It's a really just a well done Groundhog Day slasher. And if it was, that's all there was to it. Mm-hmm. I would love it to pieces. Wouldn't make my top 10 list. Happy Death Day to you makes it explicitly a time travel story. It's not about like, oh, uh, uh, Bill Murray just happened to wake up and some the gods of, yeah, or co- some other... Yeah, some sort of co- cosmic or divine fate is put yeah, into, some, put some, 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 co- some cosmic or divine entity has stepped in and is trying to teach him a valuable lesson. That is not what happened to Tree Geldman. In Happy Death Day to you... We follow the same day from the perspective of the guy she ends up dating at the end of that day's roommate. And it <laughs> turns out he is part of a science project where they're building a time machine. Now, and it's like sending out time loops floating out kind into the of, world and yeah, catching people. Kind of. So she had got caught in a time loop. And after a certain number of machinations in the sequel, she gets caught in a time loop again the exact same day as the original movie. But, there's a key difference. Now she's in an alternate reality. <laughs> Things are a little different. Universe story. It is a parallel universe story. The same rules apply. Every time she dies, she goes back, but she goes back into this timeline. And she's got to figure out a way to not only stop the loop, but also get back to her original timeline. Or does she want to? Because she finds out that in this timeline, her mother is alive. That's that's a big conceit of the original is that yeah. uh, her her mother has passed. And yes, and that's a big part of how her relationship with her father. And that's a big part of how she turned out so bitter and cynical. And in this version, she's alive. And in trying to get back to her original timeline, she'll lose her mom again. She'll have to give that up. Mm. There's this unfortunate thing in a lot of sequels where, especially a sequel to a movie that really wraps itself up really tidily in one story, you kind of have to get everybody back to zero again. So they can learn a new, the same lesson yeah. again. Like, oh, yeah. did your protagonists end up together at the end of the movie? Well, we have to break them up arbitrarily. We so have to repeat the same story. We again, have to repeat. We're not that creative. We're not. We can't think of a new arc for them to go through that actually progresses from that new starting point, and it's really, really frustrating. Uh, here, the movie acknowledges that Tree went through a life-changing experience and is a different person. Happy Death Day to you forces her to learn a different lesson through the same basic mechanic. And it's more about how to give things up. It's more about how to grow and evolve in a different way. Uh, Meanwhile, the actual sci-fi plot is really fun. Because the idea (laughs) is this. 
She figures out, okay, you guys built this time machine. Hmm. Send me back. And I'm like, great. Okay, yeah. We just have to do uh, some research and try to make sure we do this the exact same way. The research should only take us a couple of days. Shit. <laughs> we only have one day. <laughs> so what happens is they need to teach Tree quantum physics so that she can memorize an incredibly complicated equation that takes up like an, a giant blackboard <laughs> and bring it back with her just purely in her memory every single day as it evolves. So she's not only becoming a better person, she's becoming a better student. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's picking up a new smarter, major. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fucking clever. Um, these movies are great. Uh, this horror element kind of takes a back seat in Happy Death Day to you. Mm. It's not really about that anymore. More like a sci-fi comedy at that point. Yeah, part. There's, there's a few horror-ish elements, but it's not really what it's about anymore. Uh, but I admire that. Mm. How, how daring to change your genre. <laughs> like <laughs> midstream like that. That's really cool. Mm. So uh, it'd be like if Scream 2 was literally just about Sydney going to college and dealing with her trauma and there was no killer. Mm. Probably would have worked. Those characters are very well written, but bold choice. So I love Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day to you only makes it better. It leads, theoretically, to a Happy Death Day... Everyone's been calling it Happy Death Day Tree. There you go. No. Uh, but uh, that... Unfortunately, Happy Death Day to you did not make nearly as much money as Happy Death Day 1. So they've been really slow walking it. But hopefully someday we get it, because it seemed like they were going somewhere. But the first two movies are great, and I love them to pieces. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I love those movies. Uh, my own arbitrary rules kept it off my list. Fair enough. Um especially when we get to the second one where there's like actually like they, they mm. do have a time loop element yeah and they there is like a time travel element but it's like part of this broader spectrum of like science fiction conceits that are going on yeah uh i i do appreciate sort of the existential crisis that comes up in the second mm -hmm. because in the first there's no explanation as to what's going on yeah and a lot of it has to do with her uh like in groundhog day improving her life and solving a mystery because that way the universe will start to make sense again and mm -hmm. time will start to run at a normal time. There, there's an existential element to that story. And even on a plot ways, it yeah. makes sense because maybe if she's a better person, no one will want to kill her. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she uh, takes sort of her time loop as a, a sign for her to like sort of divinely improve her character. It's, yeah. Uh, just like the ghosts that visit Ebenezer Scrooge, mm. uh, the the divine powers are conspiring to improve your life. Right. Uh, Happy Death Day to you brings up that it was sort of a random thing that happened to her because of the science fiction device uh -huh. that they and, were working on on campus. And now and she's she actually, not special anymore. And she has this scene where she's like, so I improved myself for what? I'm not special? That like, wasn't like for me? That was just mm. sheer blind doodah chance? And and yeah, so like the sucks. idea the idea of improving yourself is kind of walked back yeah. in, in this really bitter sort of a way. I love the I love the subline of Happy Death Day to you, where the guy she ends up with at the end of Happy Death Day in this universe mm. is dating someone else at her sorority who she doesn't like. Yeah, but in this universe she's great. Uh -huh. In this universe she's a better person. She can't even be mad about it. Mm. But uh, because at the end of the day she has to kill herself in order to go back to the start of the loop and continue mm. to do the research in order to. Get everything back. Mm. She has to. She gets to choose how she's going to do it, and she starts having fun with it. And there's one bit where <laughs> she decides. It's incredibly to, bleak, but I love really it. She like just walk into the middle of like a grocery store and just start chugging Drano in the aisles. Yeah. <laughs> there's one where she decides. This is in all the trailers. She decides to go skydiving, but she ends up just jumping without a chute. But, but she lands like right on top of the two people who are dating. <laughs> she doesn't like right now. It's fucking great. 
so so grim. So great. Love that Jessica Roth MVP man. All right, what you got next? Um, I was hesitant to include this just because it's like a, a big pop culture stable uh-huh. and there's been a lot of sequels to it and it's been analyzed to death. But mm. when you go back to the original, mm. you go back to the original conceit, it's actually a pretty terrifying notion. Mm. If there's a time traveling robot after you, <laughs> that's really scary. So I'm talking about James Cameron's The Terminator. Uh, this one also uh, made my list and yeah, I did pick the original. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I In terms of just like cinema enjoyment Terminator 2 was really important to me when I was in junior high school Terminator 2 I, was just I, one of the best big blockbusters it's just yeah there's pure populist filmmaking I feel that's what James Cameron is good at he just mostly ta- taps into something whether or not you like his movies they gets the big crowd yeah uh, you know I, I know you're not a big fan of Avatar but a lot of people are a lot I of get people it. saw that movie I get why people like yeah. it I just don't for reasons I've gone into in great detail and it's not a time travel I, movie uh, I don't want to get into those I, weeds it, I admire Avatar. I don't like Avatar, but I yeah. admire Avatar. Immensely. I don't even do that, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that when the sequel comes out. I feel like James Cameron is a much more interesting filmmaker when he's when he has to be creative around his budget. Yeah, but as soon as he started getting unlimited budgets, mm. he made some good movies. I think Titanic is amazing. Yeah. It's a great <laughs> blockbuster. Like it's just yeah. huge and really earns its hugeness. Like the, and everything you heard about the special effects in Titanic, I, I also think with Avatar, yeah. are, are true. I think yeah. he just really pushes what technology can do. And I think in Terminator uh, 2 in particular, because he was inventing a lot of the things that were in that yeah, movie, yeah. even though he had a lot of money, he had to figure out how to do them for the first time. And so it still has that mm. can-do, makeshift, and premature. It's just gigantic. It's gigantic. And the, the whole idea of like the liquid robot, yeah. like that, that had never been seen in movies that, before. Who that the was fuck? really creative. That's, I say uh, this, man, like a robot coming after you i can imagine it there's precedent uh there's a big ship sinking i can imagine this president we're on an alien planet and there's a bunch there's of monsters after you, yeah. i can imagine this president liquid metal guy <laughs> we take that for granted right now when that shit came out everyone's like what the fuck did this where did this concept come from mm. this is amazing yeah it looks amazing it plays amazing and there feels like there is almost aside from like the blob there's like no real precedent for that mm. it's an uncanny that yeah, movie. So, so I do love Terminator 2. Same. But I, I think in terms of... Uh, As a time travel story. Time travel story and, and sort of the purity of the idea. Yeah. Um, which you know, Harlan Ellison would have some ideas about who came up <laughs> with the idea. But, uh, Harlan uh, Ellison successfully sued to put his name on that project because James Cameron flat out admitted... That he I believe it in the epi- idea from, I, from Harlan Ellison. I believe it was an issue of Starlog where he mm-hmm. did an interview and he was like, yeah, I basically got the idea from Harlan Ellison. Or Harlan Ellison was just like... Like spat out his coffee and immediately got called his lawyers and now he's now he's on that shit. So watch, watch your fucking mouth, there, James Cameron. There, there was a, a, a wonderful joke in an episode of Freakazoid about Harlan Ellison. Oh yeah, where um they go to a, the science fiction convention and uh, the villain is fanboy. He's distracted by pop pop culture. Yeah, and uh, he's like. Uh, Freakazoid, the hero, is trying to bribe him. He's like, will, will you stop chasing me if I give you the script for the just-written Batman 4? It's like, ah, I plucked that off the internet last night. And this is like the mid-90s. So yeah. It's all very edgy stuff. How about your very own Harlan Ellison? <laughs> and Fanboy says, who's that? Oh, and it's like, it's such burn. a joke. Oh, <laughs> oh, this is so dark. 
course, the fa- of course, the target demographic for Freakazoid, the kid market, mm. probably didn't know who that was. Uh, yeah, but still, <laughs> that's such a how about you, Harlan Ellison? Who's that? Harlan uh, Ellison is a very prolific uh, science fiction writer. If you don't know who we're talking about, he wrote uh, several episodes of The Outer Limits, which James Cameron ripped off for The Terminator. Like legally, <laughs> we can say that. Uh, and uh, he also wrote some of the like one of the best episodes of Star Trek, according to a lot of people. I don't mm. like it, uh, but uh, yeah, he's. A bit of a legend in the sci-fi writing uh, world. Yeah, also, a huge curmudgeon. Huge curmudgeon, and uh, maybe rightfully so, because a yeah. lot, of, a lot of people have ripped off his ideas without yeah. asking his permission. He's had a lot of legal troubles with his own intellectual property. Yeah, uh, the Terminator case in point. But the yeah. idea of the Terminator is uh, ordinary woman, young mm. woman. She's, I think, she's only like nineteen in the movie. She's pretty young. She's played by Linda Hamilton. Linda, Linda Hamilton. Yeah. She's a waitress, and a robot appears from the future. Yeah. Uh, and that's Arnold Schwarzenegger, big, imposing, steely, soulless yeah. guy. Yeah, they came this close and, to getting uh, O.J. Simpson. Uh, that would have changed things a lot. I was heard that Lance Henriksen was up for it. A lot. They were talking but, about uh, a couple of people. Lance Henriksen was considered. Mm. O.J. Simpson was considered. They mm. went with Schwarzenegger. Yeah, probably I, I, for the best. Well, but think about that. Lance Henriksen mm. uh, is just an ordinary guy. You can't He's imposing. You, you can't yeah. pick him out of a crowd. Is the point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. sort of blend in with humanity. And the idea is the the robot is covered with human skin, so it looks like a human. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's like a movie monster. He like yeah. has has that Frankenstein <laughs> quality. So I think they made the the correct choice in terms of like just a, a good creature. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but yeah, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger appears. He's soulless, very uh, all business. He's going after just like an ordinary waitress, mm-hmm. but because it's like a death kill bot, he goes to a gun shop and buys like f- fifty guns. Like yeah, you, you don't need all those guns to kill a waitress, but okay. Yeah. And the idea is uh, that yeah. in the future, she's she herself, mm-hmm. arguably of historical not huge significance, but her son, her unborn son, in fact, not even conceived yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, will one day be a resistance fighter in the future fighting off the robot apocalypse. Yeah. And he will win. And at the last minute, this uh, evil robot called Skynet is going to send this cyborg back in time in order to try to kill John Connor's mother mm. before she could have him. Yeah. Meanwhile, John Connor sends back one guy, played by Michael Bean, also from Aliens, mm. you, you know him, He's uh, he worked with uh, yeah. James Cameron a lot. And he sent he sent back in time to protect Sarah Connor from the Terminator. Uh, what we're talking about here, in addition to just a cool time travel conceit, we're also talking about men fighting over women's bodily autonomy, which I think is kind of interesting. <laughs> and people don't always bring up that aspect yeah, of the man. Terminator, but it's in there. Mm, that, uh, I think that's something James Cameron wasn't really thinking about. I don't think he was super um, thinking about it a lot, but no. it is in there. Yeah. It is in well, there. Well, I, I think the the conceit that James Cameron was thinking about is this, uh, no matter who you are, you could just yeah. be this rundown waitress in a diner yeah. somewhere. You don't you know, know the impact job, you'll have on the future. But you yeah. you are actually, like, key to the future. Yeah. Uh, your, your, exi- your continued existence is important. And I think that's that's yeah. the appealing idea. I, I, there's a line I've... I, I brought up Doctor Who a bunch of times already, but one of my favorite lines in all of Doctor Who is there's an episode where he meets someone in the future mm. and uh, he asks who they are and they say, oh, I'm not important. And he says... Wow, I've never met someone who wasn't important before. That's <laughs> <laughs> such a great line. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so she's super duper important, and there there is this unstoppable killbot, mm. really unstoppable, by the way. Like he's a juggernaut. Yeah, yeah. Like, 
you can unload guns into this thing and it yeah. won't stop. It's, it, yeah. It's, they, it's, they do not have the equipment necessary and, and to kill uh, it in the past. And because, uh, you know, James Cameron wants to show the cool special effects, uh, the, the human skin that the robot is wearing mm. starts to get ripped off here and there. Yeah. So, uh, there's this really, um, it, it's a rubber head, but it's a good rubber head. It looks where, good. Um, it looks uh, good. Yeah. The, the Terminator has to like sort of pull out its own eye and we get to see the robot eye underneath and yeah. it's, it's really cool looking. And then of course, by the end of the, all of the skin has been removed and there's just this yeah. robot skeleton chasing after him. And it's, it's really, so fucking really cool. cool looking. It's a low budget movie, mm. but it doesn't need a bigger budget. Mm. It has what it needs. And yeah. James Cameron, who at the time was, a, he was, he just started, uh, he, he'd gotten to start working in visual effects. Mm. He worked in stuff like galaxy of terror. Uh, he had previously made Piranha 2, The Spawning. You do the special effects for uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. I think he worked, on, he worked on the visual effects yeah. for that as well. Um, he was, he was he, the extent to which he actually worked on Piranha 2 is a little ill-defined. Some people say he was fired yeah. after a few weeks. Some people say he wasn't. Um, it's a movie he's effectively disowned, but if you watch it, mm. first off, it sucks. But <laughs> also... It's full of shit he would use in later movies. It's full of scuba diving. It's you can see that underwater stuff. It's got it's got got scenes of the abyss, Titanic, Avatar two, his documentaries, uh, a lot of like the escapes and stuff, or like stuff that he would kind of revisit in the Aliens movies. Like it's it's part of his canon. Like it's part (laughs) it's bad, and he had it taken away from him, even if he did finish whether he finished filming it or not. But it's clearly part of his canon. But regardless, he came from that Corman school. He came from that, uh, we have next to nothing and we have to make it look like everything. Mm. And he was talented enough at that to make the Terminator feel like a big budget movie. And it does. It feels huge. It doesn't have the giant epic set pieces Terminator 2 does. But because the, the, the conflict is so clear and the Terminator is so threatening, it doesn't need that. The bit where the Terminator like goes into the police station and so, they won't let him in and Schwarzenegger says, I'll be back. I'll be back. Yeah. And then just and drives just, a truck into it. Yeah. It's just The Terminator doesn't care. Like you know, it has it's, no it's end a, game. It's it's a Terminator. It, it's not it trying to destroys things. It's not trying to be like it's only trying to be secretive to the extent that it can kill Sarah Connor, and then it's done. It doesn't care if it's it's discovered or kept secret or anything like that it can just destroy and there's something just really fucking terrifying about it the first terminator movie is basically a horror movie Mm. and it's a good one and on top of it all when you get to the end of it it's also kind of a time loop movie (laughs) yeah no there's 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 a causality there's definitely a causality loop in it that future films attempt to play with uh terminator 2 plays into it um, especially the ending that they ended up sticking with as opposed to the original uh, original mm-hmm. ending where there's an ending that they shot where they prevented Judgment Day and it's a big mega happy ending. They didn't use it. I'm actually rather fond of Terminator 3, which <laughs> is not as good as Terminator 1 or 2, but few films are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a truck chase in that movie that is as good as anything in Terminator 1 or 2. It's really fucking incredible. And the ending of Terminator 3 where they try to reckon with the fact that there's a bootstrap paradox in the Terminator movies where they went back in time and accidentally created the Terminators. What if that hadn't happened? How would the Terminators have been created? Hmm. Terminator 3 answers that, and pretty well. Hmm. So I rather like it. Four sucks, five sucks. Six is quite good. It's a bum rap. But um, dark, the, dark Fate, right? Yeah. Dark Fate has some really good stuff, and I like the way that Dark Fate... 
suggests that the terrifying future that we saw in the Terminator, mm. where like you know humans are round up and rounded up and put into camps, and there are like drones fly up, you know, searching the skies, and uh, and machines have been re- humans have been replaced by machines, mm. is uh, now. Yeah, <laughs> that's the future we were trying to prevent with the Terminator. We just let happen. We did. We did it ourselves. Oh, yeah, that's actually pretty fucking smart. Actually, I really like that movie. Uh, I I resent a lot of the sequels because they're taking this very simple, like Rod Serling conceit: robot from the future is after you. You're you're more significant than you think, yeah. and make it all myth heavy. Yeah. And you know, talk about the you know the Skynet and. The plans and yeah. when Judgment Day happens, and especially when we get to Genesis, where they're like rewriting the rules of previous movies and stuff. Yeah. It's like, come on. Well, I think uh, all, all of all of these things aren't. It, it's too simple a concept to go into that sort of thing. Here's how you yeah. do. Here's how you do a Terminator sequel. Uh huh. Don't S- send a Terminator back in time to kill Linda Hamilton's mother. Mm. Even further back in time, and each yeah. and with each progressive sequel, you go further and further back in time until you have Terminators in the Old West. Yeah. You know, just keep doing that. Terminator in the Old West. Well, I mean, that's when you, your pitch. When you see Prey, which is Predator yeah. in the in you know the the hmm. colonial in, era, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good just fucking idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would actually argue, and I, we should move on, but I, I would actually argue that the Terminator franchise, Terminator Two, notwithstanding, they clearly made that work. Uniquely ill-suited to a franchise. Yeah, it shouldn't have it's, been a thing. It's it's done. It's a mm. it's a causality loop. And every movie you get, Alien as well. Like, like, like the, the only the, movie, it's not like myth in Alien. Like the, the only the, all the movies in the in the uh, Terminator franchise are about the same characters dealing with their predestination. Uh-huh. It's boring. You either have to change it, and then people get mad at you for changing it. Or you don't change it enough, and people get mad at you for not changing it enough. You're fucked. Mm. It's it's not a franchise. It's like a one, maybe two movies and done, and then you're good. At the very least, Aliens, like the Alien franchise, you can just throw different people at those monsters, and it kind of yeah. works. Terminator, it's so it's so specifically focused on a small group of people. You're, you're screwed. Mm. Doesn't really work. Anyway, uh, we should move on. Okay, I have two left. You have three left? Um, let's see. I have one, two, three... One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I have three left. Okay, I only have... Mm. Let me just double check my myself mm. here. Yeah, I only have two left, so why don't you take the All next right. one? Um, see, I don't want to talk about just my favorites. <laughs> well, then this is a bad... Yeah, this is going to be a bad I, episode. <laughs> I'm supposed to talk about your favorites, buddy. Uh, I, I guess so. Um... I, uh, I saw this uh, science fiction film when I was a kid. It's a Disney science fiction film. Okay. Uh... And oh, I know what it, you did. it really, it really sort of uh, just drew me in in this interesting sort of way because it deals with time travel, which I hadn't really given a lot of thought to. Yeah, uh, it's called Flight of the Navigator. I like this movie, but I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, th- this is this is one I watched a lot as a kid. Uh, it's just a childhood favorite. I can't declare it a, a cinema classic. Has Sarah Jessica Parker in it? It was yep. one of her first roles. I, I, there's a whole uh, there's a whole bit where like he's a little kid and he gets shunted not too far into the future, like ten years. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, Punk is in, and like he meets this like nurse at the hospital where he's in, and mm-hmm. she's got green hair. And she's like, "How do? Why do you have that?" She's well, like, I'm "Twisted not... Sister." It's like, who, "Not my she? sister." <laughs> yeah, who's she? What the hell? It's adorable. Uh, yeah, uh, the idea is uh, this kid, or- ordinary movie moppet kind of yeah, a kid, very likable like, kid, 
likable, sort of every kid sort of a character. Yeah. Has the striped shirt you saw a lot of kids in. <laughs> movies in the 80s. Yep. Don't, uh, have to, don't have to pay anyone to have use that shirt. No, it's just a polo. You got <laughs> no, the, the good There's no logo on that. We're fine. Uh, he's out in the woods. Uh, he's interested in space. Uh, he falls into a ravine hmm. and then wakes up later. And he, he has missing time. Yeah. Doesn't know what happened. A he lot goes, of time, unfortunately. And, and he, he goes back to his home and... And this is a nightmarish sequence where he goes into his home and everything's different in his house. Yeah. And there's people in his house he doesn't recognize and he freaks out and breaks down crying. And every kid would do that. Yeah, that'd be terrifying. terrifying. As it turns out, 10 years have passed and he doesn't remember any of it and he hasn't aged. Yeah. And uh, he's taken to NASA and he's put under study. Why didn't you age? He meets his little brother and his little brother is like... He's now his older brother. He's now a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is like you're my. This is really weird. His parents look yeah. kind of the same, but they're a little older, uh, and he's just terrified. And it's eventually revealed that he was brought aboard a spacecraft. He was abducted by aliens, and the craft is at NASA. They have yeah. the craft. The craft is unlike the flying saucer you'd, you'd see in most movies. It's this sleek uh, metal pod, and it turns out the craft took him into space and went at near light speeds. And this is this is a concept that was introduced to me partly through this movie. Mm. He was traveled so fast that time time slowed down for him, and he yeah. didn't age. He was returned to Earth. If you say so. Uh, uh, he gets on the ship, and wouldn't you know it? It is an extraterrestrial craft. It has an artificial intelligence on board. Uh, this sort of like glowing sphere on the end of the mechanical arm sort of follows him around the ship. Really interesting special effects. Everything's gleaming and silver. Like, it looks like it's an empty room, but all these panels start opening up and the ship changes on the inside to sort of accommodate him using 1980 special effects. So it's all very practical. Uh, and the machine intelligence is played by Paul Rubens. Yeah. And I think it was uncredited at the time. And what's yeah. funny, though, because if memory serves, the idea is it's just kind of a robot, mm -hmm. and the kid asks it, like, why do, why do you sound like that? Well, I could sound like Paul Rubens if you want. Mm -hmm. And so they do. Yeah. <laughs> and he's doing his Pee Wee Herman shtick, too. Occasionally. Well, the oh, idea is yeah. at one point, uh, it, and it's very cold and very, like, kind mm -hmm. of weirdly alien yeah and at some Very point he's like gorgeous though it's really pretty yeah <laughs> i love i love how all the surfaces are like extra smooth yeah, yeah you know it feels kind of comforting almost egg-like it's great uh and at one point uh he says well if I, I if i scan your brain i can communicate with you better like well what i don't want you to scan my brain well i might kill you well then don't do it <laughs> well I, it'll make no trust me <laughs> so he, he scans his brain and that's when he starts like spewing with pop culture references mm. but in in a way where you can tell the alien doesn't know how to do it right. Yeah, the alien so doesn't understand the context. So it's actually not, like, yeah. precious no. pop culture references. No, it works really yeah. good. And eventually, it's and he goes, like, a joyriding in this craft. But the time travel conceit comes back. It's like, wait a minute, but I'm still ten years in the future. This is really fun and all, but... And it's one of those those kid fantasy conceits that actually I buy. I've seen a lot of kid movies where the kids get whisked away to some sort of magical kingdom. Yeah. And they always, you know, it's the Wizard of Oz thing, but I have to go home. Yeah. And my answer for a lot of these is, why? <laughs> <laughs> You're in this wonderful magical fantasy kingdom. Leave your family behind. Well, I mean, it depends on how, it depends on how they paint the family, really. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. You know? Like, because again, like, okay, Dorothy can go home. Hmm. 
Elmira Gulch is still going to try to kill your dog. <laughs> like, that one I kind of get. But, like, yeah, a lot of times it's like, no, I, I do miss my family. I love my yeah. family. Uh, James Acaster has a great bit uh, in one of his stand-up routines where he talks about when he was young and uh, he used to go on, like, vacations with his family. Mm. And then finally uh, he got old enough that his parents gave him the choice. You can either come on the vacation with the family mm. or you can stay home by yourself. Oh. And he immediately left at it says, Goodbye! And they left, and I was home alone. And then I realized I only liked two things in this world. Vacations and my family. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Aww, that's so sad. But people love their family. That, that's so counter to all the uh, entertainment I grew up with, where yeah. kids were left on their own. Uh, yeah. I, I grew up in the 1980s, and I, I do believe that skyrocketing divorce rates have a lot to do with the way entertainment was, was presented to It's kids. certainly something that I think because, was on a lot of filmmakers' minds. Yeah, this yeah. idea that kids are being left alone. There aren't parents around. Well, the, ho- the ho- home life is a little different. There's, there's also, you can work it around the other way, mm-hmm. where, uh, we, you know, E.T. was very successful, and there's a lot of movies mm-hmm. about kids that are making a lot of money. How do we justify... All these kids going on adventures without their parents getting in the way constantly, mm-hmm. their parents are busy getting divorced or going to work. Yeah. So it, whether it was by design or just as a justification for why the movie exists, either one works. I think with uh, Flight of the Navigator, yeah, uh, the fact that he's displaced in time makes his urge to return believable. Yeah. He doesn't want to stay 10 years in the future. It's not like some fantastical futuristic wonderland. Uh-huh. It's... Nor is it a dystopia and like his whole family has fallen apart and they're all uh, awful. It's just like, no, I just want to go back. It's 1996. Yeah. Jerry Maguire is in theaters. (laughs) It's like, I'm not ready for that shit. Send me back. He's got nothing here. (laughs) I think it was 76 to 86, is actually how the. Oh, yeah. I think think he he gets sent to the 80s from the late 70s. He's in 86 now. Twisted Sister has been now. Also, there's Uh, a really early CGI in this movie. It looks pretty cool, actually. On the craft, yeah. Yeah, there's this cool bit where, like, it looks kind of like a big walnut. And then and it kind uh, of elongates. Yeah, it elongates yeah. and turns into like almost like a sports car version of it, and then it just flies off the screen. Fucking cool! I remember when I was a kid, I thought that was the coolest yeah, when, thing in the world. When when you're a kid, it's a really cool movie. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's uh, pretty good. I like it. it. I, I, but I think it is kind of sweet and smart and strange in a way a yeah. lot of uh, films of its ilk aren't. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, and. and it, it is this sort of displaced in time thing. It has this young kid thinking about space travel and time travel. There's yeah. a lot of dialogue in the movie devoted to that. It's not just the space adventure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so I, I consider it, you know. No, it works. Technically, it's a time travel. No, it totally works. Yeah. Uh, my next pick is also uh, on the sensitive side. Okay. Uh, it's obviously got time travel as a mechanic, but it's not about life or death consequences. It's not about any of that stuff. It's just about... Being a teenager and getting power, you probably aren't much responsible enough to use. Uh, and it is Mamoru Hosoda's uh, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. I've heard a lot about this and have not seen it. I love this. Mamoru Hosoda is one of my favorite filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've made quite a few of my favorite movies in the last 20 years. Not just The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, but also uh, Summer Wars, uh, Wolf Children, uh, Mirai was really, really great. I, liked, I like Mirai a lot. Um, um, uh, the Boy and the Beast was really, really excellent. It made me cry, like, just bawling. Uh, wasn't a huge fan of, what was that internet musical one he did, like, the other year? 
Internet Music Award. Yeah, it was like Bell or something like that. Oh, Bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that Be- one wasn't Be- great. Beauty and the Beast story. That one didn't come together very well, but nobody's perfect. Uh, uh, one of their earlier films uh, is from 2006. It's an anime film. Uh, and it is about a teenage girl, very typical teenage girl, typical teenage girl problems. Uh, and she discovers through sheer happenstance that when she takes a big flying leap, like just jumps off of something, mm. when she lands, she lands back in time. And she's able to go back in time to like earlier in the day. And she ends up using this all the time. <laughs> Just constantly. She will use it over and over again just so that she can, like, stay out doing karaoke for, like, eight hours. Like, that kind of thing. She starts using it to, like, get slightly better grades on tests. She's just incredibly irresponsible with the power to change the universe. And she's all she's really doing is affecting her own little microcosm. What she doesn't realize is that all of these little changes that she's doing, they are impacting other people. She thinks she's only thinking about herself. And what she doesn't realize is that, okay, so I used my powers of time travel to get an unusually good grade on this test. Mm. Good for me. Problem is, the kid who is usually the top of the class, this sends him into a crisis of conscience that could literally destroy him. And then she starts using it in ways that really make her life complicated. Like, um, she's on, like, um, um, a bicycle or something with her best friend, a boy. Mm. And the boy decides this is the perfect time to tell her that he's always loved her. And as soon as he starts telling her, she's like, nope! And she jumps. But here's the thing. She can't unknow that. Uh-huh. But he's never told her. And she has unwritten the only opportunity they can have to have an organic conversation about that. And it's all about just using time travel in the most immediate knee-jerk selfish impulse by ways not in the big epic i'm gonna change the future forever just in terms of i'm just gonna change it every single little day um and on that note uh it's not un- entirely dissimilar to a really good movie i really like called about time with donald gleason i, I was gonna bring Bill that Nunn. up yeah, yeah it's that's kind of like more of like the live action version of this i like that movie a lot i'm not a huge fan of in that movie there's this whole subplot where he meets the perfect girl, played by um, Anne... Um, it's Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams, thank yeah. you. That's, I, I knew Anne was wrong. But Rachel McAdams. And he ends up using time travel in order to basically groundhog day the situation and stalk mm. her and make everything kind of perfect. And I find that a little damning to his character more so than it needs to be. And it brings it down just well, a smidge. It's so... Uh, what's his name? Richard Curtis. Uh, yeah. Made that movie. And uh, it, as such, it's like unbelievably sentimental. Yes. Like it's, it's really like it's supposed to be as warm as possible. But the good bits are really, really good. I love the bit where like he's like bonding with his father who also has his power to travel through time. Mm. And... There's a moment where they realize this is the last time they're ever going to be able to do that together through the machinations of time travel. Mm-hmm. It's really sweet, actually. It, it, it's a very sweet film. And I like that movie a lot. Um, this one, the only real problem with this movie, and the only reason this isn't my number one, because I actually think in trying to tell a time travel story about the little things in life, mm-hmm. it achieves a, a level of profundity that very few other time travel movies do because they're so big and concerned about plot and mechanics and shit. Yeah. The only problem I have with this movie is towards the end of the movie, they do feel the need to explain it. And it's more an ornate that it needs to be. It's it's just, I didn't need all of that. I understand that it's actually adapted 
from like the second book in a series. Hmm. So I guess if you're a fan of that series, you're going to want some of that stuff. I didn't need it. It doesn't really hurt the movie, but it keeps it from being just kind of this like perfect little creation in and of itself. But it's so fucking close. Mm. And it's really sweet. It's really uh, tender and romantic. It's very it's very affable. Um, and yeah, people don't talk about it enough. It's really fucking great. So please mm. see. There's a live action version I've never seen. But the anime version is sublime. The Girl yeah. Who Leapt Through Time. All right. All right. Um, well, speaking of like machinations of plot and stuff, <laughs> we, we've been talking about sort of these sentimental films, these films about sort of wonderment and how time travel is uh, sort of a reflection on the human experience. Yeah. But uh, very few films bother to get into sort of the nitty gritty, the actual physics of it, the way things actually operate. Except for the movie Primer, yeah, which uh, a Shane Carruth film from 2004, which is nothing but that shit. And you know what? Mm-hmm. It's stronger for it. It's it's easily the nerdiest time travel movie. Like mm. Tenet, if people think that shit's nerdy, it's not. No, Primer no, no. is just nothing but. I figured out all of the time travel mechanics. They all make sense. It's mm. not necessarily interesting, but for some yeah. reason, because it's like if you're auditing a class from like way beyond your pay grade like oh it's, i'm gonna i'm gonna audit a quantum physics class but like like a master's class and i haven't even taken like the first class mm-hmm. you can pick up and you know everyone knows what they're talking about and you can pick up just enough to know that this is probably brilliant mm-hmm. but you're not following it and it's, that's primer it's, it's really difficult to follow and, yeah. and, I, and i i kind of like that i like that it's all shop talk i yeah. like how sort of brainy it is i like how the characters are sort of speeding through all these details of time travel and not really stopping to tell us what it is and i like how lo-fi it is it's actually an incredibly low budget movie uh there's no pizzazz to this film at all it takes place in like garages and alleyways and stuff and yeah these two scientists uh have just in their garage figured out ways to uh, you know, send out rays and manipulate things and sort of enclose spaces inside boxes where time moves at different rates. And they just, they figure out, well, wait a minute. If we were to uh, build a box big enough to hold a person mm-hmm. and we were to sort of like you know, bring in like oxygen, something that could keep us in there for a long time, we could actually stay in there for a long time and that would actually bring us backward in time. Yeah. And we would emerge... Uh, at, at a different time than yeah. we got it. And we could, we could never go back further than the creation of the box. Right. Which is, you know, a bit limiting, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. And, and so and they, they decide to they, test that out. Yeah, and they, and they think it through. They think about where they're going to be. Mm-hmm. They think about... Uh, How to stay out of the way of any... Of, yeah, any, their present any, day. They, they don't know what's, what would happen if they were run into their present yeah. day self, so they stay well out of their There's way. this really terrifying sequence where they're back in time and one of them forgot to turn off their cell phones. Mm-hmm. So they get called mm-hmm. and they don't know if that call went through to their phone of the actual version of them from that timeline. Right. And they <laughs> don't know if they just fucked up the whole time stream. Yeah, now there's two <laughs> phones of the same yeah. thing. And... and uh, yeah, like I said, there's no there's no light show in this one. No, uh, the, the, no. the time machines Very are lo-fi. literally just cardboard boxes in this. This Basically, is something yeah. that uh, Shane Garuth like made. Uh, let me look up the budget of this. I'll look it up. thousand dollars. It was almost nothing. I'll look it up. I got um, but uh, seven thousand dollars. Seven thousand dollars. He made this movie. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. If if, if it made like. <clears throat> I think it, it made less than a million, but like a huge amount back on its investment. Yeah. Uh, 
But a lot of a lot of time travel nerds talk about this movie because not only do they talk about like the mechanics of time travel, which you're not following because it's just way too way too much to do with like actual temporal physics, but they actually talk about the philosophy of it a little bit and talk about the implications as to what it means to exist outside of this concept of time, uh, and I think that's that's why people are drawn to prime, uh, Primer. I think it's less to do with. The plot, which is a little complicated and also a little bit difficult to follow. You're going to watch the movie three fucking times before you really piece together what actually happens in it. Yeah, like and what, even what, then, what maybe the, not all of it. What the motivation is and why, the, like how these people did this yeah. thing and what they put it where. And It's uh, all the complexity of Tenet with none of like the, the action sequences. Yeah, and you know the action sequences are fun in Tenet, but I don't no. understand the physics of those things at all. Uh, Tenet sucks. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, there's some interesting ideas in it and the occasional sequence is kind of neat. But it doesn't actually but, work. But, oh no, she's going to get shot with a backward bullet. That that's makes it worse, worse. That's worse than getting shot with a bullet? Like, that's still How? bad. I don't know. So, wait, so I shot this in the future, and now I'm getting... Uh, it, t- Tenet doesn't... No. It, it's, it's a really bad film. Uh, Primer is uh, in sort of draining out everything but the physics and the, the mm-hmm. philosophy it's getting at sort of the true nature of what time travel is all about what and, which uh, is uh which is i couldn't fucking tell you <laughs> uh, well no which is uh our minds aren't sophisticated enough yeah to abandon the notion of linear time yeah uh that's the way our brains work that's why we invented time because that's a, it, it's more an, and time is actually more of an out, uh, a product of our brains than it is something to do with physics. Uh, time we can only think of time as being a line. That's the model we go with, yeah. right? Yeah. That uh, you know, think of like the past is over on the left side of the line, the present yeah. is right there in the middle, and the future is over on the right. And we're always and, in the middle. And we're always in the middle, and the line is con- the and it's constantly yeah. moving. That's the only model we our brains can handle for time. Pretty much, yeah. Um, I've heard other. Uh, models of time that see time as something of a helix sort of like a corkscrew shape yeah where we're constantly moving along it but there are going to be a lot of uh, repetitive patterns in terms of our behavior in terms of the way you know time cycles we base our clocks on the movement of the planets sun sun coming up and going Mm. down yeah uh so i mean why is that why do we choose that as the measure of our clocks Mm -hmm. It's just sort of arbitrary. We can well, it, it makes sense of, to us. It makes sense yeah. to us. Yeah, that's what it boils down to. Well, it makes sense to us because it's what we were raised with. Oh, but yeah. there are other ways to build clocks. Sure. Um, I, I feel like Primer is trying to point out that uh, there are other ways of thinking about time, and we are simply, as a species, not creative enough to grasp that. Yeah. Uh, so in this seven thousand dollar movie is grasping way out into the abstract. Yeah. And I love it for that. I admire Primer. Mm. I do. I think Primer is the ultimate tech nerd movie yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, I've gone off... I, I've, I've lost my interest in Shane Carruth. He's had some accusations against him. He's not a great uh, he, person. He was a, uh, uh, Shane Carruth was arrested for breaking into his ex-girlfriend's house yeah. uh, and like vandalizing her place. And uh, Amy Simons, yeah. like put out like a, a restraining order against him. Yes. It's, uh, not great, it's not great stuff. I'm, I'm I, I, but danger, that, dangerous man. This isn't a referendum mm-hmm. on, on Shane Carruth. I'm just saying like I'm not a huge fan of Shane Carruth. What I am saying is that I think Primer... 
is a great intellectual exercise. Mm. And I used to really admire it as a movie, but the older I get, the less interested I am in it as a movie. And the more interested I am in it as an intellectual exercise, more than anything else. And that's why I didn't end up on my top ten. Well, I, I, I can appreciate it. I, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by its complexity, mm-hmm. but I'm not necessarily fascinated by it cinematically. Mm-hmm. I think I'm more fascinated by just how well they thought out a complex time travel story. Well, I, but it's it's sort of um, that, that abstractness you're talking about mm-hmm. and that you admire so much. For me, that makes it feel a little inhuman. Mm. And that, as a result, that loses me a little, okay, and that, so it takes up my top ten. That that that's fine. I don't yeah. I don't mind that it's a, a little inhuman. That's fine. And, and We're fact, just different. Um, yeah. uh, you know, the the idea that um, film sort of dramas stories uh, are are sort of pri- primarily meant to have some sort of emotional hook is yeah. uh, a bit of a trap we can fall into as critics sometimes. Can be, can be. Because sometimes uh, what they're meant to do is give us a little bit of an intellectual thrill. Something yeah. that appeals to sort of the logical parts of our brains. And that's Primer 100%. Well, I'll agree with that. And I will say this. I'm not asking Primer to be sentimental. Mm. That's not. I'm not saying it needs to be maudlin or have a melodrama. That's not my point. Mm. I think my point is that I feel like it's only interested in the math. And as someone who is bad at math... Uh, I'm I'm less interested the the light is shed I've never pretended I was I've literally said I'm a critic because I'm bad at math like I've literally (laughs) said that like I'm bad at math I've never been particularly good at math I'm good at the basics but once it gets more complicated my brain just goes nope pass I don't believe anything you're saying I don't buy it it's stupid Um, and that's fine I'm so glad other people are good at math because if it was all up to me there'd be none uh, I'm reminded of a joke from, um, I think it was um, Oh God, Book Two, where uh, George Burns, a little child, challenges God, played by George Burns. They say, you made some mistakes. Hmm. And he's like, what are you talking about? Well, math is a little complicated. Well, okay, math is a little complicated. <laughs> There's chaos in the apartment, yeah, right? Because the, the cats are running around. They, the cats are scampering, yeah. properly scampering right now. It's pretty great. Anyway, I, I admire the complexity of Primer. I'm not as huge into it as a movie, but I appreciate everything you're saying about it. Okay. Um, Getting back to my number one, my number one movie. All right. Is a film that came out around the same time as Primer and has a lot of the same complexity as Primer, but to me has a much more interesting existential core to it. Okay. And this is Nacho Vigalando's Time Crimes. I, I wanted to catch up with this and I still haven't watched it. I really hope one. you watch this movie someday, just, just time, for yourself. Time, time Crimes and... Um... Not Crimes mm. of the Future. What was... No, uh, was the, that was the... Crimes the of the Future was a Cronenberg movie from this year. There's another... Uh, uh, Sound of Thunder. That's what I'm thinking of. Those oh. are two, two time travel movies I didn't see. Sound of Thunder is just absolutely awful. Great premise. Oh, okay. Great premise. The original story it's based on is great. The movie itself, not good. Okay. Um, but Time Crimes is I, great. I've seen neither, so I can't speak to time it. Time Crimes, much like uh, Primer, is a very low-budget, independent time travel movie. Mm. Uh, and it is about uh, a middle-aged man, and he is uh, at a house that he's renovating with his wife out in the country. And he's just kind of hanging out, being a lazy... Uh, just a lazy fuck. <laughs> just, like, hanging out in his backyard. And he looks, and he's peering into, like, the woods behind his house... And he sees, like, through binoculars, uh, there's a lady in the woods, and she's undressing. Uh And he, being an asshole, decides that he's going to look into that. And then he sees that she appears to be being attacked by a person in, like, a scary mask, covered in gauze, like the Invisible Man. 
He goes to investigate, and he ends up tracking them down, like chasing them, trying to figure out what's going on. And he ends up finding out that the property next door is a laboratory mm-hmm. where a scientist, played by Nacho Vigalondo, explains, uh, I've invented time travel and it, there are problems. And he explains what's going on to the guy, but um, the guy isn't very smart. <laughs> he's not stupid, but he's not built like this. He's not a math guy. So he'll, you'll tell him all these time travel rules, and it's not really where he's at. He's, a, he's not a nerd. He's never thought about how Back to the Future works. He just accepts what life gives him. Mm. And so as this guy gets thrust into another time loop, not a loop really, but like into a causality uh, uh, uh-huh. paradox, um, he winds up uh, reliving different parts of the day from different perspectives and becoming trapped in time mm. to the extent that time uh, he, he doesn't understand okay it's, it's so complicated um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this movie um, he starts getting a glimpse of what he knows will happen in the future mm. and he starts realizing that he is personally responsible for some of it because he goes back in time okay. why did he do it? he doesn't know he doesn't know why this thing that he apparently did was done by him. So he starts doing it just because he knows he did it. And he All no right. longer knows if he has any free will whatsoever or if he's only doing things because time travel told him to do it. Hmm. Is he going to have to commit a murder? Is he going to have to do something unspeakable? Is he going to have to do something weird and creepy just because another version of him might see it and be motivated to do something later on? He doesn't fucking know. And it gets really fucking complicated. But because this poor bastard is trapped here and it becomes like this weird kind of almost like almost Greek tragedy version of hell you realize that time travel in this movie, this is not an escape. This is not an attempt to better our lives. This is not an attempt uh, to contextualize our lives. This is not an attempt to do anything like that. Time is where we're stuck. Time is where we're trapped. And if we step out of phase with it for even a second, we gain no control. The universe goes on and we are its little playthings. <laughs> and that is on one hand kind of terrifying, but t- towards as the movie continues, you realize that you can also find it liberating. Mm. And as a result, the film achieves a level of philosophical profundity that I quite admire, even when it gets incredibly cynical. Uh, Time Crimes is really exciting, low budget filmmaking. It's very intelligent. It's just as complicated in many regards as Primer, yeah. but it has this level of like human anguish and despair that makes me infinitely more invested in it, and I think I get more out of it thematically as well. Okay. So if you've seen Primer and you you want to see something like it but not quite like a different, totally different vibe and tone, please see Time Crimes. If you've never seen Primer, please see Time Crimes. <laughs> please see Time Crimes. That's yeah. what I'm basically telling you here. That's my number one. All right. What is your what is your uh, number one? And I still have one left. Um, yeah. uh, my, my number one film is only reveals itself to be a time travel film by the end. I know what you're doing. 
Uh, oh, do you know? I, I think so. Well, you did. You did one that wasn't a time travel film until the end. I'm not. Well, I'm, so. not I'm not saying it's wrong. All right. What I am saying mm-hmm. is that I think the movie you're thinking about rhymes with Schmarrival. I I think it, yeah, it's De- uh, Denis Villeneuve's <laughs> Arrival. Um, uh, Denis Villeneuve is a very cold filmmaker. Uh, it's not a very yes. sentimental film. He's very, very true. Very technical. Uh, I I find his films to be. Uh, visually very overwhelming, but mm. in terms of like story and character, rather inert. Yeah, often, um, yeah. N- not a big fan of his work overall. Um, but I think Arrival was, was one of the best films of that year uh, because it's actually about language and perspective and how perspective can be so strong that time becomes meaningless or mm. time kind of changes its meaning. Uh, there's a, a time travel twist in Arrival that I want to go into the details too much about because if you no, haven't it doesn't, seen it, it's it, really... it doesn't enter the picture in the way you might expect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, because throughout most of Arrival, it's it's an alien visitation movie. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of aliens have invaded. They land in these uh, very unusual crafts that... Uh, they're they're sort of like cigar shaped, but they uh, sort of land upright. Yeah. And when people step onto them, gravity shifts and they're kind of walking up on the inside wall of it. Uh, and yeah, it's all sort of very spare. It's all very. Uh, I appreciate when movies make an alien feel alien. Yeah. Uh, really, Scott did it in the movie Alien. Yeah. Uh, well, we, were, we were just talking about Flight of the Navigator. Things look very strange on the interior of that ship. Uh, it's in in Arrival. Yeah, everything looks like it's come from a place you can't really understand. And they uh, meet these creatures. Uh, that are nicknamed the septopods. Yeah, they have seven <coughs> they have legs. Seven, tentacles. seven yeah. legs, no trunk. They they look a little bit octopus like, and uh, they blow these sort of gigantic, uh, splattered rings onto glass when alien uh, humans come in and talk to them. Yeah, it's clearly their uh, mode of communication. And yeah, this this is evidently an incredibly complex form of communication that goes into sounds they're making, little details within the splats. Uh, it's such a sophisticated form of communication that it takes a lot of study to figure out what they're saying. And it goes to uh, something that's very true about language. That you can't understand a concept until you have a word for it defining things changes your perspective on the world. Uh, An example I pointed to when we first reviewed it is this interesting notion that if you read a lot of ancient texts, you read like the Odyssey or even the Bible, there are no words in these ancient texts for the color blue. Yeah. And this has led to a lot of speculation as to why there isn't any reference to the color blue. You read the Odyssey and there's a lot of weird references to color. Sheep are described as being purple. Yeah. Uh, and the most notorious one is the wine dark sea, sailing the wine dark sea. That's very evocative, but yeah. the sea isn't the color of wine. Right. Uh, and it so, leads to this like really frustrating misinterpretation of history where if there wasn't a term, especially a term that we know for something, uh, people assume it didn't exist back then. People mm-hmm. use it as an excuse like, well, you know, all these like, uh, you know, queer identities and trans identities that didn't exist back then. No, they, they just didn't they, use the they, words They, they used have. different words. The, the, the yeah. vocabulary was different. That's all. Yeah. Um, uh, so you don't recognize it because you don't recognize the terminology. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and uh, something happened in my life that I, I also refer to. Um 
Well, anyway, but the, the idea about the color blue is yeah. some people have thought uh, that human eyes have changed since ancient times, that we weren't able to perceive that color. Might have evolved, um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, some people even gone on to say that uh, human consciousness was completely different. Than, consciousness evolves more quickly than uh, you know physical bodies. Yeah. Um, something happened in my life that uh, I, I thought was incredibly significant. When I was a little kid, mm. people referred to a person's sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in reference to their gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were often used interchangeably in conversation. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the word gender, uh, when I was growing up, and in fact, uh, historically, gender was a, a linguistic term. Yeah. It was used to refer to like nouns and verbs. It was, Gen- off, it was often gendered, used a little bit more archaic. Yeah, yeah. Ger- gendered language. Yeah. Uh, sex was referred to humans. Uh, I think because uh, sex just the word sex uh, was getting people a little bit giggly because it referred to sexual intercourse uh, in order to sort of, uh, in my experience, and this is my experience in order to sort of soften it, uh, the word gender was used and lo, there is now a difference between sex and gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word transsexual yeah. was replaced by the word transgender. And yeah. uh, now there's this, uh, new form of expression that wasn't part of the conversation before you know the way language evolves changes the way we perceive things and the way we yeah. converse about things uh and yeah. uh i think arrival takes that to a logical extreme where language is not just changing the way we perceive things but it's changing the way we perceive time yeah and how we can learn to find words to express things now has changed the way our minds operate yeah, how could how could we um, attempt to communicate in a way that we can understand mm. with people who don't perceive time the way we do yeah they their entire communication system would be completely different Dharmak and Jalad at Tanagra <laughs> uh, what you're saying about the terminology by the way it's not, not all of that's like strictly uh, there's some dispute over how the terminology has changed and but regardless you're going through your personal, personal experience just want to make that clear i'm, I'm not because, saying something universal no because some of the yeah. some of those things were actually like yeah it changed before mm. you realized it but that's but that's your point's valid your point is basically the when you learn of ter- terminologies it shifts mm. i wasn't aware of my own um sexual identity mm-hmm. uh I, I'm, I'm gray sexual until i found out that was a thing yeah <laughs> i didn't know that was an a, option that's a word and when i found out that was a thing i was like hey wait a minute mm. Oh, and now all of a sudden uh, it starts to click. Everyone says that we need to get rid of labels. I think labels, as people refer Mm. to them, actually offer a much more complex human taxonomy Mm. and uh, let us see and acknowledge a greater variety of people. If you can can avoid using them in a way that's limiting, where that's Mm. all you are, then yeah, they can be really great because now I can appreciate that you're part of this big complex tapestry of them. But, But anyway... But yeah, the arrival, it turns out, and without going into any detail about how it affects the plot, the heptapods don't exist and perceive time the way that humanity does. Mm. And as a result, it is a linguistic puzzle involving essentially time travel. Um, That should, by all rights, be an eye-rollingly complicated linguistic... (laughs) You know, just just as, as, as complex as Primer... And and, mm. and and just, just, as, just as fusty, just as bone dry. It really should be, but the story is there. Mm. Amy Adams is a great person on which to hang this. She's just one of our most like just <clears throat> openly emotive movie stars, mm. uh, and in a way that she can always get away with it. Um, 
And the way that the story weaves in and out of her backstory and her family situation um, and what we learn more and more about her and the way that her increased perception of new ways in which to perceive reality change our perspective on her and her life and her own perspective on her life. Uh, I'm, be- I'm trying to be vague while being specific. It's very yeah. complicated. Well, I, I, um, yeah. If you know, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, this might be hard to follow. The point is this. This could be an abstract intellectual exercise. Because of really excellent character work, particularly from Amy Adams, it is anything but, and it ends up feeling like a really great character story. And it ends mm-hmm. up, not unlike Time Crimes, putting the, the character in this weird existential place where am I doing what I'm doing because I'm choosing to do it or because my awareness of time Mm. has shifted and now I feel like I have to do things just because they have to happen. And that's an odd place to be. It's an odd thing to consider. Mm -hmm. Um, Great movie. I, I, Great movie. It's, I honestly, it's, it's my number one. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I it might have made my top. T- I forgot to consider it a time travel movie until oh, okay. we were talking, yeah. and then somewhere around like I don't know halfway through this, I was like, "Oh, Rival, <laughs> yeah, Rival's kind of a time travel movie." And then I was like, "Whitney Pitt." <laughs> I, sure I don't need to worry did. about that. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I was very effusive at the time, and I still yeah. very fond of it. No, but excellent movie. Okay, so. On that note, that, that is it for our top tens. Mm-hmm. We'll go through our runners-up in a second, but for the sake of posterity and for anyone who might just want them all in one place, here are our lists for the best time travel movies of all time. Uh, my list. Uh, Eliminators. Source Code. Peggy Sue Got Married. Uh, a Carol for Another Christmas. Time Bandits. Time After Time. A tie between Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. The Terminator, the original, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, the anime film, and Time Crimes as my number one. And Whitney's top ten was Army of Darkness, Donnie Darko, Predestination, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, a tie between La Jetée and its remake, Twelve Monkeys, Time After Time, The Terminator, Flight of the Navigator, Primer, and Arrival. Uh, Whitney, tell me about any runners-up you might have. Uh, talk about. Th- this was another sort of corny favorite of mine, but I just couldn't in good conscience include it. But I'm very fond of Warlock. I had that <laughs> on my list, too! <laughs> but uh, a, a Warlock, a, a, a minion of Satan played by Julian Sands, uh-huh. is arrested in the Middle Ages, casts a spell, and throws himself into the present. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and Richard E. Grant, Richard very Grant. sexy Richard E. Grant, is a, is a mm. witch hunter traveling to the future to stop him. Very time it. after time, actually, yeah, but with I, uh, magic. I, uh, um, I, I read the novelization of this. Uh, there, there's a lot of weird changes that they made. In, I'm yeah. glad some of the changes they made uh, made it into the movie. Yeah. But uh, the Richard E. Grant character, he was supposed to be like this gigantic Viking guy. <laughs> He's supposed to be like a Liam Neeson type. And, uh, and instead they got Richard E. Grant, who's sort of like genial small British actor I love Richard E. Grant though so and, and he's fine. yeah he's totally fine in the role um, uh, Star Trek 4 and Star Trek 10 uh, that is Star Trek First Contact are time travel movies I just like that's Star not Star Trek 10 that's Star Trek 7 no 8 First Contact is 8 right 6 10 seven, is Nemesis eight, you're right 8 you're right Star Trek 8 yeah. Star Trek 8 is Star First Trek, Contact okay 4 and Star Trek 8 uh, are the time travel Star Trek movies yes those are fine well technically so is J.J. Abrams Star Trek 
Then it's time. Sure. Right. <laughs> Moving on. Um, I, I like the sentimentality of About Time. I think there's just a lot of... It's more about the sentimentality than the time yeah. travel stuff. It's a sweet movie, though. Yeah. Um, I, I put time, to, uh, time Bandits on mine as well. Uh, one which... The book is excellent. I think you should read the book. The film is a little bit sloppy, but uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. Yes. Yes. It's a time travel story. It's about a, a character who becomes, as he puts it, unstuck in time. He starts living his life out of sequence. Yeah. Uh, and uh, his life... He sort of relives his days in the war, but it turns out he will end his life in the care of space aliens. Yeah, it's really uh, weird. So, yeah. A lot, um, a lot of strange things, but it's, you know, based on Kurt Vonnegut, so it's very, yeah. like, philosophical and uh, thoughtful and quirky. For you, years that that novel was considered unfilmable but it turns out joy joy hill did it in the 70s yeah. it's quite good it, it's, the book it's, is better but the movie's really good yeah yeah i like that movie i mean that made my runners up too anything else uh no that was it okay uh well let's see here i have a few things on my list as well i also had slaughterhouse five i had a rival uh, uh mirai also from mama Husoda, is kind of a time travel story about uh, a little kid who starts seeing glimpses of like who they and their family will be in the future mm. uh but it's all told from perspective of someone who's very young they're like four yeah. so it's a very different perspective very good movie uh let's well, see one of the only movies i've seen that actually like know, knows what it's like to be four like yeah. it has that experience uh the back to the future trilogy it's a cliche yeah. they're very good they're very good films. I, I think they're they they all have their flaws, yeah. and I think it's time to admit well, that. But they're also very clever and energetic, and they're fun. But you don't need me to tell you that. In terms of like uh, mainstream Hollywood screenwriting, yeah. I think you should study something like Back to the Future, definitely, because it it really uh, has all of those like setups and payoffs and character moments yeah. that. Uh, Hollywood movies tend to reach for and don't always get. Like those sorts yeah. of things should be their birthright. Yeah, and. Only films like Back to the Future get it right every once in a while. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're into screenwriting, watch the Back to the Future movies. Uh, I, I'm fond of two myself. Uh, I'm fond of them all. Uh, let's see. Uh, there was a really good time loop movie from a couple of years ago called Palm Springs, starring Andy mm. Samberg and Kristen Milioti. Also does really something some fun stuff with that premise. Uh, the Tom Cruise action movie Edge of Tomorrow mm. uh, does that sort of, uh, you know... I get killed, I go back to the start of the time loop, and I gotta try to find my way through the video game kind of vibe. On that note, it's basically the same as Run Lola Run, but I like Run Lola Run better. Mm -hmm. And Run Lola Run very came came very close to my uh, to my list. Um, the George Pal adaptation of the Time Machine is a little stuffy by modern standards, <laughs> but it's fun it's, and it's definitely worth seeing. It, it's it's a good, yeah, boldly technicolor mm -hmm. sci-fi movie. Uh, Planet of the Apes and Escape from the Planet of the Apes are both very very good, but I think they're I think their greatness lies not in there being time travel mm -hmm. stories. But they are very, very good. Uh, Predestination made my runners up as well. Primer made my runners up as well. The animated movie Mr. Peabody and Sherman. <laughs> that, that's a cute movie. It's a very cute movie, especially for kids. It's good. Uh, not a great movie, but I'm fond of it. Uh, Free Jack with Emilio Estevez, Rene Russo, <laughs> Mick Jagger, and Anthony Hopkins. Free Jack is garbage. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fun kind of garbage. It's a fun kind of garbage. Uh, let's see. I mentioned Deja Vu earlier. That's a very clever Tony Scott movie. Uh, 12 Monkeys and La Jetée made my uh, runners-up. Army of Darkness made my runners-up. I don't know if I wrote this ironically or not, but I did write down Beastmaster 2 through the Portal of Time. I think you just wanted to bring up Beastmaster 2. probably did. A Hot Tub Time Machine is really, really great. I came close to my top ten. I've only seen Hot Tub Time Machine 2. And then there's a movie There's a movie that I wanted to watch for this that I had never seen before. No, that's not true. I'd seen it when I was a kid, but I barely remember it, but I remember liking it. But I saw it when I was like seven. 
Biggles. Tell us about Biggles. Okay, so Biggles, uh, there was a series of books about, I believe it was a World War One aviator uh, uh, yeah. named Biggles. And he would uh, fly around and get in big adventures, and they were all just... War stories, basically. I, I, I know about boys' Biggles. adventure stories. Yeah, I know about Biggles from Monty Python. They would spoof Biggles a lot. Yeah, it was a very, very popular series of books uh, for young adults back in the day. Uh, in 1986, they decided to make a movie version of Biggles, but this time they decided Biggles would travel through time to the 1980s. <laughs> That's not a thing Biggles did. That would be like, hey. We're going to remake Little Women, except this time, Joe is going to travel in time to the 1980s. It's a pitch. Anyway, uh, it's called Biggles Adventures in Time. I remember liking it when I was a kid. It's probably terrible. It's also Peter Cushing's final film, which oh, I didn't it? realize until I looked oh, that up I... right now because I want to make sure I got the subtitle correct. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, at some day, I'm going to sit down and watch Biggles' Adventures in Time and see if uh, young me was crazy or not. Sometimes young me was. So uh, so I'm, I'm just mentioning it. I'm mentioning it. It's not an honorable mention. It's just a mention. Much like Beastmaster 2 through the Portal of Time. Anyway, that is it for the Iron List. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you're a member of our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you can vote for future episodes of the Iron List. You also listen to this episode and all of our other new episodes ad-free. And you get a bunch of other exclusive podcasts besides, depending on what tier you're on. Uh, the next poll will be up shortly after this episode debuts. And here are the options that we're giving you for our Iron List episode for the month of December. The best bug movies. We're not going to be too uh, 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 hoity-toity about this. Insects and arachnids are both okay, but they're bug movies. Mm -hmm. The best CG animated movies. Very specifically CG animated. The best sports movies. Pretty broad topic. The best found footage movies. Doesn't necessarily have to be horror. And uh, you can also pick the continuation of our ongoing series, the best movies that happen to begin with the letter G. <laughs> anyway, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and vote. We will do whatever one you force us to do. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have any movies that uh, we forgot or maybe gave the short shrift to and you want to stand up for, please send us an email. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us an actual physical letter to uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh, Twitter still exists for now, and we're on it. Uh, we're at Critic Acclaim as a podcast, uh, but as individuals, I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. You can also find us on Hey.Cafe. Have you, have you started a Mastodon yet? Uh, I I haven't started one yet. Okay. I, I'm old. And I also I, old. I, 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 I sign into Mastodon and um, I become one of those memes where a lot of it's... math problems float around my face. Mastodon and... is unnecessarily complicated, but I am in there if you want to search for me. Um, and I, my, my Mastodon tag is on my Twitter profile. Uh, so there's that. Mm. Uh, and uh, just a big shout out to all of our patrons without whom this show could not exist. Uh, and um, yeah, anyway, uh, enjoy... Life. I don't know like, how to end this. Go, go out and, ex and experience time in your idiom. There you go. That's the list. Mm.